$50,000 worth it to become champion of the world? I think so. What do you mean? They'll disqualify. The match will be over. He can't. He can't. His back gave out. There's no way he can win the world title with a power bomb. And Hollywood Hogan has come into the ring. And that ends the match. And Nash just realized, turned around, he didn't see Hogan at first. Hollywood Hogan has won Kevin Nash's chances and become the world champion. Nash said I had it. I'm going to put the world in a state of shock. I say that I'm going to introduce to you right now the new leader of the NWO, Big Sexy Kevin Nash. I just want to say to Sting, you know, if you ever need me, if there's ever a situation where you need me, please just call me because I'll be there. And Nash has come in. Powerbomb time, I bet. You're right. He did my sting. Kevin Nash. Kevin Nash has put Savage in the driver's seat. A $50,000 fine, if he is fined, is a small price to pay to become champion of the world. He drags Savage over. He grabs the referee. And the referee looks one. He looks at two. And he looks in. We've got a new world champion, my God. It is indeed the dawning of a new era. Welcome everyone to the Wrestling 20 Years Ago podcast. My name is Rory McNamara. As you may well have heard, there is a new regime in charge here at Wrestling 20 Years Ago Towers. Uh, Mr. Bob Bamber has decided to step down for at least the time being, and he has handed over the reins to myself and the two other Chrises. What could possibly go wrong? This is volume one of our editions for you this month, looking at World Championship Wrestling and the Spring Stampede pay-per-view. Volume two is our World Wrestling Federation show where the focus will be Unforgiven, and Volume 3, ECW, and better lead up to their next pay-per-view. A new regime it may be, but I still have one of our stalwarts of the show with me to talk your way through for the next two hours, Mr. Eric Landstrom, my friend. I, I am that middle manager that somehow survives the corporate merger and doesn't understand how or why, but here I am, uh, happy to serve the new regime in any capacity, which I may. No red pen through your name, my friend. I can guarantee you that. So what I will say to our listeners now is you can expect pretty much all the same retro wrestling goodness you've had before. We're going to give you the same old news. We're going to give you the TV reviews. We're going to give you in-depth pay-per-view reviews. And we are, of course, going to give you this. Eric, kick us off with the news today. 
I will. A new news structure as well. And here we go. So uh, it looks like Nitro suffered a rating defeat. They did indeed. For the first time since June the 10th, 1996, my 14th birthday fact fans, Nitro was defeated head-to-head bona fide in the ratings by Raw. This was the Raw to base on the 13th of April, which was the already classic edition built around a match that never took place between Steve Austin and Vince McMahon. And that was enough to defeat by 0.3 ratings points. So a clear victory outside the margin of error of the show that Nitro put on store for us that particular day, which gave us a second main event in a row of Sting versus Kevin Nash, which actually pulled in its own rate, the own rights of 5.6 rating the week before, but a lightning couldn't strike twice and they were defeated. People are not very happy with that. We will talk about that a lot more very shortly. And all roads really do lead to Hollywood. I feel like we've copied and pasted this from 1996. (laughs) The more things change, yes. Uh, At Spring Stampede, Randy Savage became the world champion by defeating Sting in a main event. He held the belt for just one day because he knows his place. And Mr. Hollywood Hogan took the belt from him in a very widely well-received match, actually, on uh, on the edition of Monday Nitro, which helped pull Nitro back in front for the ratings. A bit desperate, you might say. A match which also was built around the heel turn of one Brett the Hitman Hart. We will talk more about that later on as well, even though I'd rather not. And Spring Stampede fails to blossom. <laughs> I thought long and hard about that particular headline. Yes, the Spring Stampede pay-per-view took place uh, in the middle of the month. Uh, reviews pretty mixed, it must be said. Uh in addition to Savage winning the title, you had the big news of Raven becoming the US champion, albeit only for one day. Again, a lot more on that as we go through. Um, eventually took place in Denver, Colorado, in front of 8,000 rather quiet fans who were really only there for the main events. Although they did get a win for Bill Goldberg. They got a win for Ultimo Dragon. They got one for Booker T, Kurt Hennig, Chris Jericho, the team of Lex Luger and Rick Steiner, Psychosis, Hogan and Nash in a bat match, and the aforementioned Raven. Did you say a bad match or a bat match? I said a a bat match, but that is something we can also come to. Well, uh, anyway, uh, speaking of uh, bad matches, uh, Eric Bischoff puts down Waltman for the one, two, and the three. Yes, much like Vince McMahon last month, Eric Bischoff took the opportunity during a Prodigy web chat to let rip, and it was poor old Sean Waltman who was the target of his eye this time. It was pretty heavy stuff. He effectively admitted that he signed Shaw Waltman back in 1996 in the first place. So he's tried to placate Messrs. Hall and Nash. And now he has admitted that he fired them to send a message to them. He contacted them to say, I have put a bullet into Shaw Waltman. Don't expect anything as repugnant as regret from Bischoff, though, as he still isn't really sorry for the fact that he fired Waltman via, uh, via FedEx. And then as a parting shot, he also had this to say. Sean Waltman is just a blip on the radar screen. And if you're not looking at crotch chopping or vulgar language, his talent pool is limited. Burn. Wow. Uh, and that's not fair to Flair, is it? <laughs> you can kiss it goodbye, brain. On addition of Thunder, due to take place in Tallahassee on the 9th of April, it was heavily rumored that there was going to be a reformation of the Four Horsemen for the 50th time. Reputedly, this time, made up of Messrs. Flair, Goldberg, Anderson, possibly Milenko, possibly Benoit. Now, Ric Flair did not attend that particular edition of Thunder, 
His son, Reed, was competing in an amateur wrestling final in, uh, in Pontiac, Michigan. And Rick, you know, being the doting dad that he is, decided that was more important than an edition of Thunder. And I can definitely see where he's coming from. However, the office did not take too kindly to this, and there was a huge back and forth over what Flair's rights really were. Now, was he supposed to be on standby 24 hours before the show, as he said he wasn't? And it eventually ended up in a lawsuit of $2 million being filed against Mr. Ric Flair. Now, as we've gone through the month, it looks as though things might have settled down on this one slightly, and Flair could, could be returning to WCW. It is unlikely at this point he will be jumping ship to WWF, but relations are still very much strained at best. Mr. Arn Anderson, of course, has put in his two cents, and you know whose side he's come down on this one. So Bischoff needs to tread very carefully here. I rather suspect we have not heard the last on this one, but as it stands, Ric Flair is still a WCW employee, but um, I think we need to see how this one goes. He's not the sort of person you want to upset. Do you think that Reed Flair, nine years old, and Richie Steamboat, roughly nine years old, went like a 90-minute Broadway in front of that Pontiac crowd? Or how did... <laughs> oh, I really hope so. Um, Maybe. I hope, well, I hope Terry Funk's son was commentating during it as well. Well, anyway, joking aside, uh, Buff Bagwell, uh, like him or not, as an in-ring uh, performer and character, suffered a pretty hideous neck injury this month. He did, yes. Uh, this was on edition of Thunder towards the end of the month in which he was on the receiving end of an errant bulldog by uh, Rick Steiner. And if you're a regular listener to the program, you'll know that I say that sort of thing a lot. And here we had a, a pretty terrible outcome for it. If you watch the footage, you will see that Bagwell's head went straight down on the impact and he could not move. The planned finish was for Scott Steiner to interfere, hit Rick with a chair, and uh, to pull Buff on top for the pin. But if you watch, you will see that as soon as Scott grabbed uh, Buff Bagwell's hand, Bagwell dropped his arm back down to his side because he was not in control of his extremities. And he was clearly talking, trying to tell, tell the guys that he was hurt. Uh, the broadcast was stopped for 15 minutes whilst he received urgent medical attention. Uh, he was out and out paralysed for about an hour. He did get some feeling back towards the, towards the end of the night. Now, he underwent surgery the next day. It was broadly thought to be a success, although there were complications at the time. He was told by doctors that he was three centimetres away from suffering the same fate as a poor Christopher Reeve, and full paralysis was very much not out of the question. However, I'm pleased to say the eventual prognosis is good, but it will be at least six months until he can even train, 12 months till he get, get back in the ring. I say, whether you're a fan of the guy or not, it's just a reminder of the risks these people take every day for our entertainment, and for that, we should thank them. Yeah, and hey, Rory, we uh, one thing about that broadcast is uh, uh, we give a lot of uh, criticism to Tony Schiavone, Bobby Heenan, Tene to a lesser extent, but I think the three of them are often rightly criticized for not just being the right tone or not taking it as uh, seriously or just not being very good at, at calling a show. But I got to tell you, Tony Schiavone and Bobby Heenan especially, and you kind of know a little bit about them. They've both had recent neck surgeries and injuries, and Heenan's neck injuries are well chronicled. Um, they really did a, a, as good of a job you can in that moment recognizing the seriousness and not and not taking a, a, a kayfabe tone. They really just laid it out for you. Look, this guy's hurt. This is neck injury. It could be serious. Like, we're just going to be as transparent as we can with the crowd without obviously freaking people out about what's going on. And so to the extent that we can criticize Shivani and Heenan, and we often rightly do here, let's just point out that, you know, sometimes they, they hit it right on the head in, in, the, in the most – stressful moment of, of wrestling broadcaster can have probably 
they nailed it out of the park. They did. I'm very glad you said that. We do rag on Shivani a lot for his miscalling of moves, and we rag on Bobby Heenan because the Bobby Heenan of 1998 is not the Bobby Heenan of 1991. But as you rightly say, they both had neck surgery themselves. They knew how serious this could have been, and I thought they handled it as perfectly as possible, both at the time and on future editions of Nitro when they were giving us an update. So yes, full credit to the both of them in what must have been a awful situation, the kind you just don't want to imagine and hope never happens to anybody. And I repeat, I'm just glad that Buff Bagwell looks like he's going to be okay. A long road, but uh, we're with him. We really are. Anything else on the news we discussed here, Eric, or shall we press on with the ratings? Press on to the ratings. We've got enough to cover, I think, in this month. We have indeed. The ratings themselves will take up quite a hefty chunk of this discussion. But before we do that, allow me to plug away. We are available on Patreon, patreon.com forward slash wrestling20yrs. For $5 a month, you will get exclusive early access to the podcasts as soon as they are edited and available. It pays for us to keep the show on the road. There are other places out there naming no names. Where does the money go? Here, it keeps us going. And we thank you very much for all the donations you want to make. So yes, the ratings, and we're going to talk about these very, very shortly. On the April the 6th, Nitro just squeaked home a 4.6 against the 4.4. Although if you read some of the sheets, Wade Keller in particular, he thinks it might even have been close to a real dead heat. There's no doubt about the result on April the 13th when Raw, a clear guaranteed victory, 4.6 to 4.3. As mentioned, Nitro did pull ahead. This is the last full ratings we've got for the month on April the 20th with the Hogan Savage main event with a 5.1 but a 4.4. We start the month in Miami with a very cold open as we see an ambulance arriving outside. Savage is prone on the ground as Elizabeth shows concern, or at least tries to. The Macho Man then gets lifted on to that board they use. Thanks, Tony. From there, we switch straight to Psychosis, La Parker and Al Dandy against Tokyo Magnum, Nabananga and Judas Sauer. Psychosis wins with a top rope leg drop and the chairman of WCW shows he is really someone you can trust by blasting his fellow masked man accordingly. Booker defends the TV title versus Disco. Not much finesse on show here, but the crowd are into it. A missile dropkick keeps the championship on the book. Lenny Lane is in Billy Kidman's ears and in his eyes. Kidman hits what is now known as the seven-year itch shooting star press for the win. Ah, that's subtle. Nobody wants to hear about your loincloth, Gene. We want to know what's happening with Savage. Handily, JJ is here to tell us nothing. He is determined to find out who is responsible for the attack on the Macho Man. Gene requests that he is told about it first. This man has a hotline, you know. Norman Smiley versus Conan doesn't last long, as the Peterborough man submits to the Tequila Sunrise. DDP Bagwell for the US title is next. Page has it won until Raven gets on the mic up in the mezzanine and challenges him. DDP goes after his former pal and is cunted out for his trouble. Buff thinks he is the US champ, but DDP reappears and shuts him up with the cutter. Hour 2 opens with extra footage of what happened to Savage earlier. This time we see a red car speeding off, followed by Vincent and the Disciple mocking the fallen Macho Man. Somebody says, this is NWO business. And here they come to the ring, led by Hogan. No survey tonight as we are already in NWO country, although the boos say differently. Tonight, Nash will bring the belt back to the family when he beats Sting in our title match later. And during the bat match at Spring Stampede, 
he and Big Kev will swing for the fences. Goldberg gets to the big 6-9 by destroying Hammer. They get the spear from a middle rope leaped spot wrong, but nobody cares, despite the guy in the audience with a Goldberg is on steroids sign. Saturn then locks Hammer in the rings. The flock are not happy. Gene brings out Piper for a yarn. He's completely whacked out and totally crazy, as if you didn't know. To promote the bat match, he actually references beating up a transvestite named Goldust two years ago. There's more possibilities in this match than Bill Clinton has girlfriends. By the time I get finished with you, Hogan, you'll be auditioning for RuPaul. Eddie and his new t-shirt are here. Oh, and Charvo too. Eddie makes Charvo wrestle Ultimo Dragon in his place as an apology for Grandma. Dragon dominates as Eddie covers his own face with a towel, and the Dragon Sleeper is good for the win. Barry Darsal versus Lex Luger is a thing that happens. A sign in the crowd tells us that Rossi is NWO for life, and of course Barry goes down down for the defeat. Thank you. Hennig and Adams take on Bulldog and Anvil at the top of Hour 3. Rude is on commentary and he hasn't improved in that field at all. Loud boring chance here, but now we're going to see a Hennig plex. And that's the end. Once more, Brett has to save them from an NWO beating. He has had enough of this. Their days of ganging up on guys are over. Jericho dedicates his match against Hoovy to Malenko, the second best wrestler in the world. Then he will rock down to Electric Avenue and then we'll take it higher. Hey, I make the lyric references around here, Chris. After a fine match, Jericho locks on the tamer, but Hubi doesn't submit. Ayakea, though, throws in the towel for him, and he chases off the champ afterwards. Scott Steiner now wishes to be known as Big Popper Pump, and he is against Sick Boy. The recliner gets this one done in short order. Nash is dressed for the occasion in a Macho Madness shirt, and says that if Hogan keeps doing what he's doing, there's a chance he will be on the receiving end of the bat at Spring Stampede too. The main event is now up with Nash going for Sting's title. Long and slow and dull stuff here until Nash goes for the jackknife and his back gives out. As he recovers, Hogan attacks Sting for the DQ. Kev tells Hogan that he had him as the NWO do the usual. Piper and the Giant clear the ring whilst Nash tries to get at Hollywood. We start the show before Spring Stampede in Minneapolis on the 13th with Finley against Big Popper Pump. Vincent is at ringside and he has a trophy with him. Can you think of anybody more deserving? Scott Shaw's with Larry the Axe during this brief but hard-hitting contest and wins with the recliner. A sit-down clip with Brett Hairs now. He was screwed over by a wrestling promoter, but he is tired of talking about it. Yes. Mr. Percentage Points, Lenny Lane faces Ultimo Dragon. Lenny gets some good heat in this one, but eventually succumbs to the Dragon Sleeper. And here's Brett again. All he cares about is getting a fair shot at the world title. He hasn't changed a bit, has he? Gene chats to Piper in the locker room. He will have Nash and Hogan wrestle each other tonight, and next week at Stampede he will rid the wrestling world of Hulk completely. Of course, the NWO show up and take exception to this. He gets beaten up backstage, and the Disciple hits a stunner on him. I think the phrase is, reflected glory. The Giant is out to talk to Oakland. We don't need to worry about Hot Rod as he'll be fine for the pay-per-view. If the big guy gets his hands on the bat, he will turn somebody into a popsicle. And as for Nash, if Hulk Hogan stops, somebody is going to get stuck. Chavo Guerrero versus Johnny Grunge is happening now. <laughs> nope, me neither. Johnny wins by reversing a sunset flip. Well, in theory. More from Brett. Nash is scum. 
and Hogan's worse. And the scum is in the ring with the mic. Hollywood has run out of the door because he wants no part of Big Sexy. Hogan has gone, but he knows that Sting is here. Nash gets him very quickly, but Dylan keeps them apart. Sting wants Nash to have a world title match, and he will have it tonight. He then gives Nash his bat and is ready to go. Dylan says they need to wait for later. Sting even wants the powerbomb reinstated, and JJ agrees against his better judgement. Chris Benoit manages to reheat Glacier. I don't just throw these things together, before ending him like a flash with a crypto crossface. Sick of Luger versus Bagwell? Too bad. The match is the usual until Bischoff kicks Luger for the DQ. Lex responds by putting Uncle Eric in the rack until Scott lumbers in and Rick then makes the save. Brett advises Savage to get rid of the NWO. If you play with pigs, you're going to get dirty. Jericho faces Super Calo and fun stuff all the way here. Jericho ducks a head scissors and works Calo straight into the Lion Tamer for the victory. Prince Nakamaki runs the Lionheart off. Hello again, Brett. He respects Benoit, Giant and DDP, but he trusts Sting the most. If you ever need me, just call. I'll be there. Aww. Flock members Hammer and Saturn square off against each other. They start by throwing Kidman to the ground. Saturn hits the Gargoyle Plex, take that Taz, to set up for the rings. Goldberg is in action against Rocco Rock, spear through the table, Jack Hammer, 72-0. The flock also get destroyed. People seem to like seeing this Goldberg guy killing people. Another one for the randomizer, Eugene Nagata versus Kurt Hennig. They get nothing going until the Hennigplex ends it. Yuji gets handcuffs to the rope and attacked by Kurt and Rude. The anvil runs them off. La Parker against Booker T is only fourth on the why are they fighting list today. Booker actually damages Parker's mask with a spine buster. A missile dropkick keeps the TV title around T's waist. Benoit then stops Parker using the chair, but he and Booker get into a shoving match before their contest on Sunday. Page takes on Rage, and yes, that's exactly why it was booked, along with a diamond cutter, of course. Raven gets on the mic and runs DDP down. He spent three years in a carnival freak show because of him. You want my title? Come and get it. He fends off the flock, while security just about managed to fend off a fan who legitimately tries to get involved. Rick Steiner and Conan sees the run of matches and matches only continue. In a major role reversal, Dibiase beats on Vincent and gets cheered for it. The bulldog that never looks good secures a three count. So here comes Sting vs Nash 2. This one has a bit more life to it than last week, and Kev nearly takes it with the WrestleMania 3 main event weight collapse. Sting rallies and is about to hook on the Scorpion, but Savage limps down and hits Sting with a cast. Nash crawls into the cover, but Sting is out at 2.9. Nash then hits the jackknife, but Brett pulls the ref out. The crowd go mad as he goes after Kev and puts on the sharpshooter. The NWO do the usual, but Hart battles them off. You know, there's a lot of things going on here tonight. I just watched my good friend Hollywood Hogan run out the back door. What does he mean? We mean run out the... I don't know. Because Hollywood knows he wants no part of Big Sexy. 
It looks to me like it's going to be a long night for Piper. Hogan got to him, and the, and the law got a hold of his buddy George Michaels last week. But the real mystery to me is where the macho man stands in all this. I thought for sure I'd see him here tonight, but I haven't seen anything of the macho man. So the way I look at things, since Hogan's not in the building, and I know Sting is, and since I just got to know, I just got to know Sting, if Hollywood wasn't there last Monday night, I got a real good feeling I'd have the gold around this sexy waist right now. Well, Ash, can you shall receive? So wielding a bat, here comes the heavyweight champion of the world. And James J. Dillon in tow. took the mic right you want to have a world title match i want you to have a world title match you want to have that world title match tonight, yeah, tonight. i want you to have it tonight oh yeah i want you to have that shot tonight you want to do it you want the bat you can take my bat here i want you to have my bat Guys, come on, guys, please. Hey, 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 no, wait, wait, hey. Oh, 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 oh. Sting is living. Please, guys. No, 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 wait. He's, he's too living. Don't, please, give, don't give Nash the bat. No, 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 wait. No, no. Guys, WCW still makes the matches. If you guys are insistent on Russell, it can't be now. You'll have to be in tonight's main event if this has got to take place. You can wrestle title match tonight. I got one last thing to say. I'm tired of you bitching about that stupid power bomb. You want that power bomb reinstated? You can reinstate it tonight because I want you to reinstate it. No, JJ won't do that, he said. Stand your ground. It's against my better judgment, but if you say he can do it, I guess I can't stop it. All right, a title match, tonight's main event, and the power bombs leave it. Oh, my goodness. Oh, my. Well, why do you agree to that? That's what Sting oh, wants. got the bat, sold out spring stampede. There'll be no bat tonight. You got your title match. You got the power bomb. What more do you want? So, fans, it won't be Nash and Hogan. It's going to be Nash and Sting tonight. World title. You see what Nash is talking about. The belt and the powerbomb. I tell you, I've never seen Sting like
control. He has He let the power bomb go through. He gave Nash the bat. I don't know. Well, I don't Sting, like this. I don't know. Sting may not be thinking clearly at this point, Larry, but it's obvious that both men have something to That's prove. It's official. It's April the 13th, it finally happened. So for the first time since June the 10th, 1996. That was, interestingly, the day where Kevin Nash showed up, where he brought, <laughs> didn't pack his dictionary, not knowing the difference between a verb and an adjective. But a main event pitting mankind against the British Bulldog was enough to secure the victory for the WWF. It's been a long, long journey for them since then, but they have now, temporarily at least, pulled ahead with a clear victory. Now, on the WWF show, Volume 2, we will talk about their, their under this a lot, lot more. But, Eric, WCW, looking, I've got the raw numbers in front of me here. They polled a 4.3. Now, a loss is a loss. And I'm sure Bischoff has boot, you know, boot marks in his backside and has ever since this occurred. So is it fair to say that WWF have caught them rather than they've gone backwards? Just based on the raw numbers for now. So in other words, it's not that the rate that the existing viewers have shifted. It's that there's more eyeballs on Raw now, and that's kind of brought them up. Yeah, uh, so, uh, to, to, to paraphrase um, Ian Faith in uh, This Is Final Tap, it's not just the case that their appeal has become more selective. Right. Well, may, maybe it is. I, this whole the ratings thing is kind of weird because it's not exactly an, a, a fine art. It's more of a, a fine guess uh, based on a very limited sample size that gets submitted by people voluntarily uh, wanting to do it. Uh, cable companies contracted a little bit better than they used to be able to, but it's still inexact. Anyway, I think the point is right now there are so many people watching uh, both shows, and uh, you know, part of me wants to think that. Maybe it is just people shifting back and forth, and maybe there are more eyeballs going from WCW to to the Fed or back to the Fed because Raw has been better, and it's been more consistently better than it has been, uh, more good than bad on most episodes. And Nitro just becomes has just fallen deeper and deeper into that borderline on insulting the viewer uh, with you know long, pointless uh, talking segments interspersed between like thrown together matches with no heat and then some sort of like pseudo main event with a disqualification finish or a swerve. And that formula becomes pretty predictable. It was becoming predictable, boy, that I can remember all the way back in August of last year when I was on the show and we talked a little bit about the the ratings grab to put the title on Lex for a week. And I think at that point I said, you know, how many times can you insult your audience before they say, fuck this, I'm watching something else? I equated it to what you would do if a normal average television show, a procedural or a serial type television show just insulted its audience over and over again. You wouldn't watch it. So I think maybe Nitro's fallen victim to a little bit of that. People kind of realize, well, something's going to happen here, but it's either not going to hold up next week or it's going to be weird or it's not going to make sense or it's just going to be Roddy Piper challenging Hulk Hogan again. So I think... It's a combination of there's probably more eyeballs on Raw following Tyson and with how hot Austin is. And there probably is a bit of a shift from people who want to watch wrestling but don't want to be insulted every week or who are tired of Hulk Hogan. Uh, so, yeah, it's a it's kind of a complicated algorithm. It's weird that wrestling's gotten popular enough to where this is even an issue. Um, but I 
I do believe that part of it is because Raw has, Raw has become significantly uh, steadily better than Nitro over the past four or six months, really since Austin's been given the keys to the kingdom over there. On Nitro now, I know exactly what I'm going to get. I watch every Nitro this month, and everybody, you're welcome. I had a checklist. <laughs> We're going to get Larry Zabisco doing that stupid salute thing at the start and people chanting his name. Why? What's going to happen? You're going to get the NWO mu- music kicking up. You're going to get Hulk Hogan and whoever Hulk Hogan's cronies are this week to tell Hulk Hogan how wonderful he is. And you're going to see that for about 30 minutes of the three-hour broadcast. You're going to get decent but too short cruiserweight matches with no real story told. You're going to get good quality workers having to get the very best out of less quality workers a lot of the time. And then that's pretty much all you're left with. Until you get to, as you say, the eight-minute main event between big names that is not going to get a decisive finish, other than on April the 20th, which we will come to. And that's it. No amount of star power. And as we always say, the roster WCW have compared to WWF, they are insultingly ahead of Titan on that score. But that's not what people want to see. They don't care about that if they're not being used properly. When you sit down to watch Raw on a Monday night, now it is electrifying television. Okay, you know who you're going to see, but you have no idea what's going to happen. I mean, did you really think when you sat down on April the 13th that you were going to end up seeing a build of Vince McMahon versus Steve Austin and McMahon backstage and <laughs> Pat Patterson grabbing him by the ankle and saying, here, I'm going to show you some holds and boy is Austin in for a big surprise and then dude loves shoving Vince down and becoming the number one contender? Absolutely not. Yeah, I knew on April the 13th when... Sting was doing his own version of the crotch chop and challenging Kevin Nash, as you'll hear very shortly, that they were going to have a rematch which was going to end in a lame no finish, which was supposedly building up to their pay-per-view the next week. It would be unfair to say that Nitro has got stale, but I don't think it's unfair to say that it has got obvious and predictable. And the answer is not always going to be throwing out epic world-changing main events every week. They can't do that every time. I mean, they won on April the 20th handsomely, like I said, 5.1 to 4.4, hands down. But yes, that's Hogan Savage, and they are not going to be around forever. (laughs) Hulk Hogan himself would probably tell you differently, but it is not going to happen. But for the interest of comparison, just for a bit of fun, I'm going to look at the very first time where Raw and Nitro did go head-to-head, way, way back on the 11th of September 1995. I've got the numbers in front of me there. Nitro won there a 2.5 against a 2.2. Now, Raw's main event there was, of course, taped three weeks before, in which uh, Shawn Michaels beat the big guy with three super kicks. And the night show was headlined by Lex Luger versus Hulk Hogan. That was second night show. Second night show, yes. So, that was the second night show of September. That was their first head-to-head, yes. Because uh, uh, it was promise preemptive. Yeah. yeah. Nothing, not, that was the, the US Open, I believe, got in the way. I, yeah. Yes, their first head-to-head. I definitely have other hobbies, I promise. <laughs> Uh, we, we do all have lives on this program, ladies and gentlemen. We really, really do. The second ever night show, the first head-to-head, and Hulk Hogan was in the main event there. Is there a lesson in there, Eric? <laughs> uh, Hogan must uh, Hogan must be in the main event if you want to win. I mean, this guy, I don't care who you are, Hulk Hogan, uh, he uh, boy can draw. So uh, that's kind of what I'm I'm learning from all this is, you know, where Hogan goes, doth blow the wind. <laughs> I mean, this podcast is definitely the place to go for Hogan criticism. Yet, sometimes you just got to turn around, shrug your shoulders, and say, "Damn, 
People watch the guy. When he said to us nearly two years ago, he's bigger than the sport of professional wrestling. God, I really, really am going to struggle to argue that point. But nevertheless, it must be said that on April the 13th, 1998, just two weeks ago, Nitro was defeated and they now cannot, cannot carry on in the same vein they've been going. Raw is now right with them. And I think it's definitely the superior product. The real question now will be seeing how Nitro carries that forward. And we will talk about that a lot more after the pay-per-view. There is no power struggle. There is no hostile takeover. Simply because Macho Man never was part of the plan, brother. I'm going to predict the future for you. I am going to beat Sting for the World Heavyweight Championship belt. I am going to control the NWO. And then... Hollywood Hogan is going to know what it feels like to be at the bottom of the pecking order, you dig it? You want some Hollywood? Well, come on down, brother. Take heed to what Macho Man said. You don't have to worry about me, because I'll shoot you right between the eyes. All I got to say, big man, you cover my back and I'll cover yours. In Hollywood, if you keep doing what you're doing, there's a real good chance I grab that bat and I beat the hell out of all three of you. It is springtime in the Rockies, and World Championship Wrestling is here. Welcome to Denver. Welcome to the Mile High City, and welcome to the springtime tradition. Goldberg defeated Perry Saturn. Ultimo Dragon defeated Chavo Guerrero Jr. while he still has that dragon name. Uh, Booker T defeated Chris Benoit to retain the television championship. Uh, Kurt Hennig defeated the British Bulldog in a 1991 match. Um, <laughs> sorry, couldn't help myself. Uh, Chris Jericho uh, defeated Prince Ayuka to retain Ayuka uh, to retain the cruiserweight championship. Uh, Rick Steiner and Lex Luger defeated Scott Steiner and Buff Bagwell. Uh, Psychosis defeated La Parca. Uh, Hollywood Hogan and Kevin Nash uh, defeated Roddy Piper and the Giant in a bat, B-A-T, on a pole match. Uh, Raven, uh, in a bit of an upset, captured the U.S. Heavyweight Championship by defeating Diamond Dallas Page. And Randy Savage captures the World Heavyweight Championship, defeating Sting in the main event. Yeah, but don't get used to it. What were your thoughts on this pay-per-view? So, you know, I heard a lot. I read a lot of positive feedback from this show. Uh, a lot of people seem to like a, a lot of matches on this show. Uh, the card itself, when I read it out loud, uh, glibness aside, uh, there's a lot of interesting matchups on here, a lot of interesting combinations, new guys, young guys, veterans who know how to draw heat, work the crowd, that kind of thing. Solid top three matches. All that being said, it just never really came together for me. Uh, maybe I need to watch it again. I probably won't because it wasn't that entertaining the first time. But I, I didn't see this as a as a very good show. Certainly not uh, anything akin to some of the reviews of the show that I've read uh, since it happened. Uh, yep, I think I'm with you on this one. This had some positive reviews from people I expected not to be positive. I do wonder what show they actually watched. And some of the star ratings for some of the matches baffled me, quite frankly. 
this event never really got going. As I said earlier, it was in front of a crowd who were only really there for the big names. They didn't give the other guys much of a chance, which didn't help. And then when you get to the big matches with the names everybody's there want to see, when they serve up what they did serve up, uh, again, much like the TV, it is a bit of a worry. I really do feel that WCW are coasting at the moment. And if they're not careful, it's going to bite them, not just with TV ratings, but with pay-per-view buy rates as well. However, we'll take you through Spring Stampede 1998, and by the end we will see if those views hold up. We do get an excellent video package which covers the tensions in the NWO, as you all just have heard. And then Tony, Mike and Bobby open the show from Denver, Colorado, and we get two pieces of big breaking news. Savage's cast has come off, and slightly more importantly, the title match with Sting will now be no disqualification. Our first match been Saturn against Goldberg. Having praised him earlier, we have to mention this about Tony Schiavone. He tells us this match will have the, the arena literally erupting. <laughs> fire extinguisher on... St- was a fire extinguisher at the pay-per-view on the, the competition, but I, I, they <laughs> dropped it back for them. <laughs> yeah, I think he's been watching Raw. <laughs> oh, Tony, you, you, you've got to love him. You really have. So our first match is Saturn against Goldberg. As we learn, Goldberg will go for the US title tomorrow. Saturn goes for a leg takedown, but Goldberg fires him over. A stoppy front suplex follows, and then that rolling leg takeover type thing that he does. Kidman pulls Saturn out to buy him some time. He comes in the other way, and then hits a leg sweep and a leg drop, and a second roll oboe for a zero count. Oh, they're, they're booking this guy. Goldberg blocks a suplex attempt and smashes Saturn to the ground, and then a big press slam. Saturn recovers with an apron splash and a snap suplex. A knee to the back, and then Saturn hits a drop kick to send Bill into the steps, rather lightly. A lovely run on the floor by Saturn but then he completely blocked his copybook by screwing up, up, up an Asai moonsault very, very badly. He barely covers it as a back elbow, but you're not fooling me. Back in, Saturn locks on a cross-arm breaker, but Goldberg just powers out of it straight onto his feet, and a chancery gets the same result. Some sort of miscommunication, and we slow things down very horribly, and Saturn, after standing around for a couple of seconds, just does a drop kick. Bill blocks another with a sidekick and a lariat. I do believe a spear is coming, and there it is. Kidman distracts the ref, allowing Saturn to block the jackhammer. Saturn fights onto the top rope, but Goldberg just, Goldberg just body slams him off it. The flock managed to get in and help Saturn put the rings on, but Goldberg stands up with the rings still applied. With what must be said a little bit of difficulty, he takes ages to manoeuvre Saturn into a jackhammer position, but he hits it and gets for three. Eric? Man, were you watching... WWF in like 88, 89 when Warrior was really starting to just catch fire. Kind of no matter what the quality of his matches was, you couldn't help but smile anytime he came out. It's kind of the Goldberg vibe here. Um, he pointed out a lot of problems with this match from a technical standpoint, and boy, boy, were they there. Uh, and Saturn's probably one of the top 10 just ring technicians on the planet right now uh, from what I've seen in ECW. And uh, he did everything he could for this poor Goldberg fellow. And they gave him eight minutes. I mean, it's clear that they wanted to make Saturn not just seem like a Eric Watts or Barry Darso-style jobber on, on Nitro, uh, Lenny Lane, you know, those type of guys. Um, but, you know, if you're going to just buy into what, you know, is like a fundamental point of professional wrestling which is just a big badass dude that comes in and he looks like he's going to kill someone and he probably will someday uh, but he hasn't yet so we can keep pushing him and he just has the crowd in the palm of his hand 
and uh, it's it's just different for WCW now, and it's it's fun. You just kind of have to buy into it if you're gonna, you know, if you're gonna enjoy a fake sport, enjoy it at its basest form. I guess is what I'm trying to say. Crowd was hot for it. Mistakes aside, this this with the way the rest of this card shook out, this may have been the highlight of the night. Uh, they lost this crowd immediately following this match. They may have might have cost themselves by putting Goldberg in the opener, uh, because if you put your hottest dude first, uh, you might burn the crowd out because nothing's going to top it. Um, but either way, undeniable that Goldberg is over. I'm I'm all in on him for now. I hope they do it right. This is the most fun you can have watching WCW right now. Eric Watts had a tryout this month. He did yeah. Look, he didn't look good, apparently. Well, wonders never cease, huh? He didn't look good in 1991 either. <laughs> I wonder if the dropkick is still still a part of his devastating arsenal. Okay, yes. He, uh, he is definitely not Goldberg, but all of Goldberg's faults. Yes, this match should definitely have not opened. Um, I can see why it did, but there's a match a bit later on in the show, which this one should absolutely have replaced. Perry Sutton, I wouldn't call him a top-grade echelon worker, but he's very, very high up in that second tier. And in that respect, I think he's a good opponent for Goldberg at this particular time, in that he can give him good quality matches and help improve Bill's own in-ring skills without completely overshadowing him and making look like a putz straight out of the power plant, which some people might well have done. Match was far from smooth. That was ambitious. Though, given that they were trying a couple of things there, which I wasn't expecting to see, the finish where Goldberg stood up out of the rings and shifted him into a jackhammer position, it took them a little time to get there. It probably sounded better than it looked, but I'm going to give them that. And it was another convincing win for Goldberg, which is what people want to see. People are paying money to watch this guy walk to the ring, snort, spit, jump on the apron, poke his tongue out, spear, jackhammer, and done. So, he does that again even more effectively the next day, which we'll get to later on in our show. But just keep going. Seven or eight minute matches with good quality workers can only help him. It's, it is going to rub off. I don't think this man is a lost cause as a worker. There are a couple of things I still think he needs to work on. He doesn't need to do that rolling rolling log leg takedown. It looks too much of, hey, look, this is a move I learned what to do. It doesn't play into any of his other offense or his arsenal at all. So he doesn't need to do that, which I feel he's doing now just for the sake of it. But yes, Goldberg is moving on and up. The crowd love what they get from him. And as you say, Eric, just, just take what you can from pro wrestling. And if it's a guy who can hit two big moves and make people cheer, isn't that really what we're here for? I think it is. Man, if they can get this guy positioned against Hogan, it could be the biggest pay-per-view that they've ever had. Like Starcade oh, this year and next year. If if Goldberg can keep going and Hogan doesn't, you know, alienate everybody in the company, uh they they've got another they've got another uh blockbuster on their hands if if this guy pans out. And that is there in the tank already. We might as well talk about it now. They could, they could pull the trigger on that next month on pay-per-view if they wanted to. Maybe give it a bit more bill, perhaps a June-July pay-per-view. But they could do it, and even if they announced it now, they could blow Starcade 97 out of the water, which would not be disappointing. Even Bash at the Beach 94. Now, that did a huge buy rate for Hogan Flair. Even that had a month build up, right? And they you know, bust all their previous pay-per-view numbers there. So it's right there already waiting for them, and people want to see it. Okay, as so often with Hogan, we always need to uh, 
take one step back and think, yes, would he be willing to lie down completely for the spear and the jackhammer? That's always at the back of our head. But uh, let, <laughs> let's not run before we can walk. But if we do get Hogan, Goldberg and pay-per-view at some point before the end of the year, which I think is a nigh uncertainty, then please take my money. And I doubt I'll be the only person saying that. Our second match of this pay-per-view, though, pitched Chavo Guerrero against Ultimo Dragon. Chavo is wearing that T-shirt again, and the Eddie Sucks chants go up as soon as the bell rings. Chavo starts with some leg locks to the crowd, then quietened down. High-paced crisscross, and Dragon gets the upper hand. A top rope headstand and some kicks, and he is still in control. A standing reverse figure of four is fought out by Chavo, and then he does the bridge reverse chin lock you see a lot of in WCW NWL World Tour for the N64. He even does the hand clap. Chavo, though, doesn't give up, and he hits back with a couple of ranas. Tony wonders why Eddie doesn't help Chavo win by cheating, as Chavo is now in a surfboard. Eddie then turns to the camera and says, Mom, I'm trying, Mom. This guy is just pure gold. Dragon with a handspring, but he gets caught. Magistral cradle, but they end up in the ropes. Rana reversal sequence gets two each. They battle on the ropes, which Dragon wins with a crotching kick. Suplex to the outside, and Perry, that is how you do an Asai moonsault. Chavo is prone, and Eddie tells him to remember the consequences. Chavo is fired up and hits a suicide flip over the top rope. He really overcooked that one. He just caught Dragon's shoulder. Stoppy double lariat spot to buy themselves some time. Insecurity and Dragon goes up, but Chavo drop kicks him low to block. Chavo, being the sportsman, doesn't go for the pin. You can tell what Eddie thinks about that, and he slaps him. Chavo tries a suplex, but Dragon reverses to a cradle for two. An Eddie-tastic brainbuster is next, but the Tornado DUT is blocked into the Dragon Sleeper, and Chavo has to submit this time. Eddie gives him what for, but despite what the T-shirt says, Chavo is not going to cheat to win, Eric. Yeah. By the way, I think I always remember I was Masahiro Chono uh, when I did WCW versus the World. I think I had that game. Um I don't know why it was Masahiro Chono. Um, so your your description of this match was good, but if it was accurate to kind of be as exciting as the match actually was, you would need to add about three or four seconds of pausing between each sentence. Um, because this match really, it was good, uh, but this match really was move, rest hold, move, rest hold, rest hold, set up the next move, 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 rest hold, long rest hold, and then go home. Um, maybe I... I don't know. A lot of people really like this match, but I felt like it was just kind of a spot fest and, and maybe it was just Dragon kind of realizing to get the best match out of Chava, who is pretty green still. Uh, we just kind of go through this basic match structure, uh, so they don't screw anything up. Don't try anything that's too psychological. Let Eddie get involved to the extent that he can. Um, so this match was good. I think it really demonstrates that Chava has some, uh, some really uh, high upside. Uh, and ultimately, this is probably going to lead to a match between he and Eddie. And hopefully, Chavo goes over, and that can kind of be his way to shine. And Eddie can go up the card even further once this is over. Um, but this match was just a little slow. Uh, it was only 12 minutes long. We've seen some much longer Dragon matches seem much shorter. Um, but uh, and the other thing is that this match killed the crowd. I think even if you had had this match first and then had Goldberg on after it, this match would have been better. Uh, this was not the right match to put on after Goldberg because it was just too, too contrast of a style to what the crowd was clearly thirsting for. 
Um, but anyway, fine match, but kind of indicative of the rest of the show where it should have been a better match than it was, but for some reason it never just quite got going. Yes, this is one of the matches where the star ratings blew my mind when Mr. Meltzer weighed in with four for this one. It was just move, 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 move. Chavo is a source of great fascination to me. He is either the most exciting, boring wrestler I've ever seen <laughs> or the most boring, exciting wrestler I've ever seen. And I cannot put my finger on what it is. He's got the moves. Yes, his mic work is ropey, but it's no worse than many of other people his size. So we can't really look at that as a negative against him too much. Yeah, I just cannot get into the guy. He is an invisible wall around him that no matter what he does, what he tries to do, what he succeeds in doing, it must be said. I just cannot get enthusiastic about the dude, and I'm not sure why. This storyline should help. I mean, look who his foil is. Eddie Guerrero, his uncle, the master. Man who could uh, make me stand up and applaud when he just turns to a camera saying, Mom, I'm trying. And I think, yeah, you're the greatest man in the history of the world. And a storyline which, as you rightly say, is bound to lead to a feud between them probably very soon now, I would say. It's been cooking for a while, which will probably end in Chavo winning. Yeah, I just don't see it elevating him. I, I, I don't think Chavo is elevatable. It's, he isn't the person who can carry a promo on the mic. He just, he, he won't be able to go toe to toe with Eddie on the microphone. He'll be absolutely destroyed. And yet, I say, as an in-ring talent, he just doesn't have the pure wrestling ability to make me forget about everything else in the which way somebody like Dragon on his very best day does. But yeah, good match, good spots. They both tried hard. Dragon, I think, is now almost a utility guy. We said this towards the summer last year. He's always going to have a ceiling. He's never going to be main eventer, what with the language barrier. Yeah, he's always going to give you a quality match because of the worker he is. Yet Charvo... Whilst I wouldn't go as far to call him a lost cause at this point, I don't think there's anything about himself he can change to get above mid-card. Not even the sainted Eddie, I think, can help him. And uh, that is a bit of a shame. He's got, I think Charbo is always going to be a dreaded, he's got all the tools type of guy. And that is not where you really want to be if you're just standing, if you're just going to stand in the middle of the road. As I said last month in the professional wrestling game, you're going to get mowed down. They'll make you a member of the new Midnight express <laughs> it worked for two people bombastic bob bodacious bart i probably got that the wrong way around i'm not going to go back and check although i wouldn't say bart has all the tools <laughs> some might say he is a tool but i'm far too charitable to say that myself <laughs> no time limit match as they make great pains on telling us now for the tv title We've seen booker t defending against chris benoit collar and elbow type gets a clean break Shoulder block, shoulder block, and Benoit rolls out of the ring. And we're back, we're back in with some hard shops. A leg sweep takes Booker down. But a knee focus and a sidekick blocks the second one as Benoit heads outside again. Back in as they fight over a clothesline, and Booker gets it for two. And we hit the armbar. Benoit fights into the corner, and he brings the pain with about 20 stomps to the gut. Booker with a backbreaker for two, and he returns to the armbar. Tony talks about how important it is to train for the altitude of a match in Colorado. <laughs> He's bringing it today. Booker eats steel off the apron. Now Benoit is back in charge with the kicks. Hard snap suplex for two. And a ripping chin lock where it really looks like Benoit is trying to pull Booker's head off. Benoit misses a drop kick but recovers with a drop toe hole. Huge backdrop suplex and now Benoit goes up. He hits the diving headbutt but the cover is delayed and Booker can get his feet on the ropes. Booker with a suplex of his own and then Benoit hits one for two. Tony tells us we've reached a 10 minute mark. 
Where's Gary Michael Capetta when you need him? Benoit in with the rolling Germans. He puts Booker up top and hits a side superplex. Benoit lands headfirst on the mat and he can't cover instantly again. Slow recovery and a drape of the arm is only good for two. Booker recovers with a spine buster, which Tony calls a sidewalk slam, because of course he does, and then a big flying forearm. Pancake and then a breakdancing kip-up kip up, sets up the axe kick, but he nails Mickey J instead. That didn't look good at all. Benoit locks on the crossface and T-taps, but the ref is done. Benoit tries to revive him, but Booker fights up and hits a sidekick over the official to Benoit, and with that, he secures the win and retains the title, Eric. Man, I uh, I don't care that much about the WCW upper card at this point because it's just so consistently disappointing. But I was really looking forward to this match. And it kind of like the last match. It never really got going. And these two guys could bring it, man. I mean, they could bring it if they wanted to. Booker has been having the best matches on Nitro over the last six weeks consistently against a variety of opponents. Um, Benoit, we know, is one of the best uh, going right now. And these two, I don't know whether they were, were told to keep the brakes on or if they just went for a different type of match uh, after knowing Goldberg was going to have the crowd like he did. But this thing, it just never really got going. And to the extent uh, to demonstrate that, you had Tony Schiavone, uh, who we've given all the credit to recently, uh, uh, seemingly just burying Bobby Heenan kind of out of nowhere uh, on commentary. And so the announcers weren't into it. The crowd wasn't into it. And then I kind of wasn't into it after a while. And then it just kind of, then there was a screwy finish and Booker retains. And it's like, what was this match supposed to be? And who was it supposed to benefit? And why it just seems like a, one of those long kind of middle of nitro matches uh, instead of one that was on a pay-per-view for a decisive title for two guys on the way up. Yeah, this was a strange one. I thought Booker seemed to be bringing something close to what I think is now his best. Yeah, other than the 20 stops in the, stomps in the corner, Benoit wasn't really feeling this one for whatever reason. Maybe, just maybe, he's betraying the fact that he's TV stroke US title for life and he's not ever going to break out of it. I mean, if you read some of the sheets this month, you'll see there is a, a, a cabal of people who are not very happy with their current status in the promotion. And Benoit is one of those. As I said earlier, he was being linked with a return to the Horsemen. That is now not happening. There's also talk of forming yet another Team Canada with him, Brett, Anvil and Bulldog. Although the way things are with Brett now, I don't think that's going to happen. So I'm not really sure where Benoit is at the moment. He's just spinning his wheels and he's far too good for that. I thought the match was fine. As I say, Booker brought it. I think he's really starting to get it now. He's mannered and layered his moveset a bit so he doesn't just go all out all the time. He builds to the really big spots, the axe kicker, the hangover. And I think the crowd reactions he's getting are testament to that. He's becoming a really well-rounded, solid worker, which I think is the whole reason they put the belt on him in the first place. They clearly had hopes and plans for this guy for a while, maybe taking a bit longer than they would have liked, but he's definitely getting there. And um, he's been given the opportunity and he is running with it. But yeah, Benoit... Benoit dogging it. Benoit at 80% is better than 99.99% of the guys on their very, very best day. I don't think he's capable of having a bad match, and this certainly wasn't that, but he wasn't really at the races. And he's not somebody you really want to run the risk of upsetting because he's just so damn good. We've said so often, every single company, all of them, they just seem to want to kill the golden goose. 
if you've got somebody who has pure ability, just run with it. Don't try and manipulate them. Don't try and change them. Go with what you've got. You don't need to reinvent the wheel. If you've got a brilliant wrestler on your books, have him wrestle brilliant wrestling matches, which means something. But here, just bumming around for the TV title, he doesn't need it. Booker T needs that title at this point, and he's making it happen. Chris Benoit, whilst I don't think he is a main eventer at this point, again, his mic skills let him down on that score. He's got everything else, and he shouldn't just be the guy who tries to put other guys over like he was with Raven and DDP last month. I give this guy really something to get his teeth into because you will reap the rewards. You're going to attract more eyes to the product if you put a, a real quality wrestler in there now because wrestling is hot at the moment. It's getting eights and nines in total on TV. And I think a lot of those people are not what you would call hardcore wrestling fans. But if you have somebody in there who is given 15, 20 minutes every week and every month on pay-per-view to out-and-out out pure wrestle, then I'll tell you, they are going to become hardcore wrestling fans. Yes, just give Chris Benoit a break. He really, really does deserve one. I wish we had a break instead of this particular match now, which is the British Bulldog versus Kurt Hennig. As you say, our, our throwback to 1991. In a very original idea, the anvil is handcuffed to Rude on the outside. Where on earth did they get that one from, I wonder? Who's got powder in their pocket? <laughs> they might as well have just gone ahead and bloody done that. <laughs> Tony says that this uh, handcuffing is being done by one of Detroit's finest, when, of course, we are in Denver. Uh, Eric, I think it's fair to say that our goodwill for Tony Schiavone is now completely ebbed away. That and this other random thought I had was, if you were to kind of take the average of what China and Slaughter is, you'd end up with something that looked kind of like something between Anvil and, and Root. So, <laughs> so it's a carbon copy anyway you slice it. <laughs> oh, God, I'm not going to sleep well tonight or any night. Oh, my word. Uh, let's get to this match, which is somehow better than that idea. Uh, Bulldog opens with punches and Hennig begs off. Bulldog kicks him in the knee and down he goes. Headbutt for a two count. Rude tries to crawl in, but the anvil pulls him out. Bulldog locks in a leg bar on the injured knee as I get flashbacks to In Your House 4. God, it really is nightmare <laughs> time at the moment. Hennig fights out, but he's still limping. We get the 10 buckle head spot which gives the crowd something to cheer. And now it's sharpshooter time. It really bloody is in your house for. <laughs> Sadly, Brett isn't on commentary to tell him how to do it properly. And in a weird moment, Anvil tries to choke out a policeman, and then Rude is able to steal the key and cuff Neidhart to the buckle. Yeah, that felt natural. He is then able to help Hennig run Bulldog into the buckle for a really, really lame three count. The policeman turns out to be Vincent, and he, Hennig, and Rude then beat down Jim and Davey. Oh, Eric, that's uh, seven minutes I'll never get back. You know, Vince might have lost Brett, but he also lost Anvil and Bulldog, so maybe we can call it a wash. Because this, I mean, the, it's like, okay, seriously, though, we've been making a lot of jokes about this match, but it's like Davey Boy Smith has aged 10 years since, like, the middle of last summer to now. Um, he was having pretty good matches with, I mean, he had the match with Owen in March or February for the for the European title, and it was one of the matches of the year last year. I mean, it was a bona fide four to four and a half, five-star match. Yep. And yeah, now you have this guy a year late, almost a year later, and he looks like he's 62 years old. I mean, he's worse than Road Warrior Hawk. And I don't know if he's – I know he's got some injuries that he's been dealing with, a knee injury of some severity, um, but something's going on with this guy. And, and he just doesn't look there. He doesn't look motivated. He doesn't look ready to go. It's really, I mean, 
wrestling can be sad sometimes like in real life. And this is an in real life moment of wrestling being sad. When you see a guy like Bulldog struggling to keep paces with, you know, the, a guy like Hennig, who's also clearly lost, you know, two or three steps and makes Bulldog look like, you know, uh, it's just so bad and sad. And you look at Anvil out there too, just collecting the paycheck and Rick Rude, who's probably still the best worker of all of them, but he can't go cause he's got a neck injury. And then, and then fucking Virgil Vincent out there just to give us, you know, the extra icing on the cake for this sad affair. Um, I don't know why this match needed to be on the card. I kind of understand you need to justify paying these guys what are probably exorbitant salaries for what they're contributing to the company. Um, but, you know, one of the reasons WCW might be struggling right now is because they're having to put this shit on the card instead of giving uh, guys like Dean Malenko and Chris Benoit and Chris Jericho and um, Saturn and all these good workers they have in the middle of the card um, – real programs to get them over. So, uh, yeah, just skip this one. It's, it's, it's bad on every level. You look at it. Fucking Vincent. I can only assume he's got pictures of somebody or something. He's on every fucking show and offers less than nothing. Eric Bulldog paid a hundred thousand dollars to get out of his contract. So I think I might know the answer to this question, but I'm going to throw it out there anyway. Should he have left the WWF? Uh, n- uh, no, is the answer to that question. Um, I think, I don't know if <sighs> this whole heart thing is, it's just going to have ripple effects for so long. Cause there's, it's just the butterfly effect. It's this one little thing where Sean says, fuck you. I'm not dropping the belt to you, Brett. in like August last year. And then all of a sudden the whole wrestling landscape is different. We're having a, a, a vigil for the British bulldog four months after he goes to WCW. Like, no, he shouldn't have left. And I think even if he was injured or limited, I think Vince would have put him in a position to either protect him or, or, or something, not just put him out there and say, hey, have a real wrestling match, even though you're clearly injured or you can't go anymore. Um, at least Vince would give him a storyline or have him do, you know, hardcore schmoz matches on Raw where he can be protected. Nothing like this. So, no, I wouldn't have left even for even if he ends up making money on the deal. This is just bad. He looks terrible. Yeah, he does. It's clearly just a sense of duty. Because yeah. I think that I think that Vince deep down really likes Davy Boy. I've always had that impression going all the way back to the mid eighties. I don't think he really wanted him to go because let's face it, it had nothing. To, what's happened had nothing really to do with Davy Boy. And on the other side of that coin, I really don't think WCW wanted him. He had nowhere else to go, and they probably thought, yes, he's another warm body to throw on the card. But you don't tell me that WCW were hunting for Bulldog at this particular time. No way. As for the handbill, you know, just forget it. Even at his best, Bulldog needs to be in there with a guy who is better than him, or at the very least on his level. And he will bust his ass in that situation to get the very best out of himself. And he's had great, great matches over the last few years in that situation. British Bulldog of 19... 96, even 97, God, just one year ago, against Mr. Perfect Kurt Hennig of 1990. That's a match I'd like to see. David Boy Smith, Kurt Hennig, 1998 is a match I did see. <laughs> Therein lies the difference. Hennig is a shadow of his former self as well. He now needs carrying, and Bulldog has never been the person to do that. Talk about Hennig just for a second. I'm not really sure what his point is anymore. 
he must really love this business because I just don't see what he has got to offer. He's trying out there. I'll give him that. But he really does seem like yesterday's man. And not to mention he is also, you could say, he's in the wrong company. He is just not a world championship wrestling guy. I mean, he can't use the name for which he's famous for. He can't use the name of his finishing move. Has to call it the Hennigplex, which is just stupid. He didn't even get a chance to do it here. He wins by with really, really piss-weak Rick Rude interference. And these are two guys who are long-term favourites of mine who are just circling the bowl at this point in time. Eric, quick thoughts on Hennig? Well, I agree with you on Hennig. And I think he could be used in a much better role. And I think it just... You know, a, a testament to a guy like Ric Flair who, you know, Hennig's wrestling style, especially his defensive wrestling style, his bumping was never conducive to a long-term career just by the way he flip-flop and flied all around that squared circle. But uh, you see a guy now who's in his, what, mid to late 30s, early 40s, and he's trying to wrestle like he did in his 20s when he was up here in Portland, you know, flying around for Buddy Rose and Roddy Piper. Uh, it doesn't, doesn't look as good. Um, but... Uh, you know, we're on the hypothetical bandwagon here, especially because there does look like there's going to be some sea change between who's going where. And we've already seen Waltman go to go to the Fed, and there's talk in the sheets this month about Ric Flair coming over. Imagine a scenario in your head where Vince McMahon calls on all of his stars from the past to come back and try to take the belt off Austin, so he can run at him Flair, and he can run at him Hennig, and they can have these like month off month-on-month-off programs to fill these B-show pay-per-views with Ho- with Austin versus Flair and Austin versus Perfect and Austin, and then culminates with, you know, however you want to end it. But, yeah, boy, that'd be kind of fun, wouldn't it? Point is, that's better than what Hennig's doing now, and I don't even know if that's a good idea. I really like that idea. I remember you saying last month we were on the WWF show, was just giving Austin name after name after name after name. Right, and Right, now you can just kind of see a roster of guys that might actually realistically be coming available to do that um, or that we would like to see be able to do that, including all these undercard guys like Eddie and Ben Juan, uh, probably not Malenko, but uh, Guerrero maybe even too. Or, yeah, I said, yeah. And there's lots of to Austin. They would not hurt them at all. They'd be, they'd be paid big money to get these particular roles. Trust me, if you want me to main event against Stone Cold Steve Austin for WWF in a losing effort, I'd do it. So I'm sure the likes of Kurt Hennig would as well. Fantastic idea, and as he said earlier, it's a growing list of names of people who are very disgruntled at World Championship Wrestling at the moment. They could be looking up north and thinking, yeah, I could be used better up there. Okay, more days on the road, but I want to be where the action is. I want to be where the momentum's going. I want to face the hottest guy in the in the entire company right, right now. And I, Austin is almost getting bigger than don't tell Hogan almost getting bigger than pro wrestling with it. I see Austin Austin 316 shirts everywhere all over the place I don't see many Hulk Hogan ones and there'd be people in the in the locker room thinking yes if I can just bask in that reflected glory then I really am going to be flying here but yeah long and the short of it this match was terrible between two guys who should not be facing each other in April 1998 and best of all nobody should have to pay for the bloody thing Prince Iakea against Chris Jericho now the Cruiserweight title. Jericho dedicates the match to Dean Malenko, who's eating potato chips and drinking Coca-Cola in the Where Are They Now file. Jericho rolls out of an armbar, but gets taken down with a clothesline. So it's laughing at Chris Jericho. The man is just... I love the man so much. Prince lands on his feet from a suplex and then slaps on a chin lock. 
Jericho gets up and hits a shoulder tackle, which he celebrates before Prince rolls right back into the headlock. Come on, Rory, impartial. It's Prince Ikea, come on. Leverage move, but Jericho tries to skin the cat, but he's blocked by a drop kick. Then a nice cannonball to the outside by Ikea. But again, he's only back to the side, side chin lock. Drop toe hold guillotines Prince onto the ropes. Suplex and the come on, baby pin gets two, of course. And now he goes down with a case of the chin locks. Prince rallies him with a fireman's carry takeover. He gets a two count. Jericho blocks what's called a forward roll by Tony and slaps on the tamer, but Prince gets to the ropes. Prince reverses a sunset flip for a close two. They go to the top but fall right off down to the floor. Ouch. Back in and Jericho goes for the tamer again, but a roll through, the, roll through for the Prince almost takes it. Northern Lights suplex, but Jericho is able to grab the rope. Back up top again. It's for a top rope sunset flip, but now it's Jericho who rolls through and is finally able to hook on the lion tamer and IRK gives it up. He grabs the Prince's ceremonial dress and puts it on to celebrate. Well, Eric, I tried to stay impartial during that one, but I failed. Jericho is a superstar. Prince Ikea is not. Well, I'm not trying to, you know, score points with the new regime here, but you're, again, your uh, description of the match uh, was far uh, more complimentary than my notes reflected being as I was This is all being noted. It. It's all being noted. Um, so good job there. Um, Four-star match review. Um but th- this is another one of those matches where it was kind of they had some good spots and uh, but it was pretty sloppy. I just wrote down a couple of spots in my notes for you know a couple of botched spots here and then they did I think what was a planned kind of botched spot off the top rope at one point. But that kind of spot only works when you're hitting the moves around it. But when you just keep missing them or it's it's mistimed or it's sloppy, uh, when you do a botch spot in the middle of the match, it just kind of looks like an actual botch. Um, but uh, that all said, you know, we've kind of seen Prince Ayaka. He's one of these other steady hand guys. And I think he, he, this guy truly is a steady hand guy. You can put him out there and he can have a decent passable match with anybody up and down the card because he's right at that, you know, six foot, 215, 20 pound where he can go up and down as, as needed. Um, and Jericho's character work has just been the best in WCW probably over the past six months. And this guy's really blossomed into this dipshit heel. Uh, who kind of just keeps sneaking out these wins against lower card guys. Got to get Dean Malenko back to pay off this uh, uh, this work that Jericho's been doing. But assuming they do that, I think this is going to leave Jericho in a pretty good spot to elevate at least up to, say, I don't know, television or U.S. title. Again, not going to break into the main event probably, but uh, he can move up the card a little bit. So match was fine. IAK is fine. Jericho's character work, outstanding. Absolutely. Jericho could be a world beater, and here's why. As a worker, he's probably about a 7.5, 8 out of 10. Chris Benoit is a 10 out of 10 for in-ring intensity. Chris Jericho is not. Dean Malenko is a 10 out of 10 for in-ring technical work. Chris Jericho is not. Eddie Guerrero is a 10 out of 10 for in-ring charisma. Chris Jericho is not. Rey Mysterio is a 10 out of 10 for high-flying. Chris Jericho is not. However, he is an 8 out of 10 for probably all of those things. Maximum, but I think that's fair to say. Yet for pure character work, abilities on the mic, talking, facial expressions, and those tiny little intangibles that only the very best wrestling characters have, he is to make another Spinal Tap reference, turned right up to 11. And in the world of US professional wrestling, where character is so, so important... 
he can take that alongside his extremely good in-ring skills. I'm, I'm saying 8 out of 10. I'm not ragging on his in-ring ability at all. But he's somebody who's very, very good and yet a superb character. You really absolutely, totally, completely want to hate him because he's such a dick. But at the same time, he has you laughing. He has you smiling. You know, his pop culture references are on point. You know, his his winsome grin. It's just everything. I think he's fun. I think he is a fantastic character. I'm just so glad we're getting a chance to see him show this stuff. I mean, just look what he was this time last year. A bland rock star baby face who didn't speak. I mean, what a complete waste that was. He can now be the Chris Jericho. I get the feeling he's always wanted to be. The match was okay. Again, bit of a spot fest. Iakea is okay. He's somebody you can keep around on the on the card as a decent enough in-ring worker. Now, he outlived his usefulness in February last year when they outright copied the Rocky Maivia story a week after it happened. And I don't quite see Ayakir ascending to the heights that Rocky now is, but he's fine. He's serviceable enough. Yeah, Good match. Just about pay-per-view quality. And the right man very much won. In a very uncomfortable situation in hindsight, we get Buff Bagwell emerging with his hand in a very unconvincing here cast. He tells us his match is cancelled as he is not, does not have a doctor's release. Scott tries to lead him away, but Gene and JJ are here. Dylan agrees that he does need a release, but it just so happens they have flown a doctor here anyway. And that is noted orthopaedic surgeon Michael Sapallo. Here's Bobby Heenan on commentary. Maybe he can change the oil. <laughs> Michael comes in to check, check the hand. But Bagwell snaps, grabs JJ with the injured one, and you know the rest. So we do indeed get the planned match of Buff Bagwell and Scott Steiner against Lex Luger and Rick Steiner. Rick starts out with Buff and hits a big power slam. Scott nails him in the NWO, assuming the upper hand. Scott tags in and goes after his brother, who puts up no resistance. Buff is still selling the hand when he gets back in and locks on yet another headlock. Scott in and he does the same. As then does Buff. Rick tries to liven things up with an overhead throw and it's hot tag Luger. Buff gets the forearm of Doom and it's rack time until Popper stops it. Scott then quickly runs to the back to get away from his brother. And it's two on one for the faces. There's the rack. And that'll do that. Eric, not much to say here apart from why don't they just stop spinning their wheels and give us Scott Steiner versus Rick? Do you want to see that match? I don't particularly want to see it. But ever since Scott made the turn, that's where this has been going. Let's just get it over with. I I have a question to ask. This is a legitimate question from somebody who remembered before we went back on to record after our break, the Stridex blimp from 1995. But I realize I currently have no idea who the WCW tag team champions are. Do you? Oh, my God. You've actually really caught me on the hop. Is, is, is it still the outsiders? Okay, I don't probably. Uh, but Hall's gone, so who knows? But anyway, my point is like That's we used to... God. We used to rant and rave about how deep the tag team division was in WCW and Harlem Heat and the Steiner brothers and the Outsiders and the Faces of Fear and Public Enemy were hot for a minute there and just on and on and on. And now it's completely gone. There were no traditional tag team matches on this card and really none on Nitro this whole month that I can really remember of any significance. Um and so if you're going to do the Steiner split up, it better be worth it. And it better not leave this vacuum of a tag, you know, to suck in all the rest of the tags um, with it. But that's, that appears to what's happened here. And so I don't know. I don't want to see them wrestle each other. This, this was significantly worse on every level than the mixed tag match from Mania 14 last month. And that included 
uh, Marrow and Sable, two, uh, pretty well untrained wrestlers involved. So, um, boy, this was just another bad one and another kind of weird match on the card, uh, that never really got going. And so, yeah, we can kind of be funny about it, but another match, the second out of the last three were why the hell was something of this quality on pay-per-view. Star power alone can't carry a match like this. Which is exactly what we said earlier. Uh, the Outsiders are indeed the tag team champions. I've looked it up. They won them back at Super Brawl when Scott turned on Rick. <laughs> so there you are. I was, I remember doing the write-ups for the shows that month, and I'd already forgotten that the Steiners actually won the titles from the Outsiders 13 days before. And if your title changer don't stick, then you really have got problems. And yes, this match was one up from nothing and that one up was purely the fact that we know who all these four guys are very little actually happened Luger, I mean, what is the point in Luger these days? What What is he doing? He's still, it must be said reasonably over I'd say his pops are in the still in the top ten, maybe even top five of all baby faces, but he's not going anywhere or doing anything he's been bumping along in this endless feud with Bagwell almost ever since he lost the world title back in August and okay, for sad reasons, we won't be seeing Bagwell around for a while. So I really don't know what Luger's going to be doing. Yes, let's just have this Steiner v. Steiner match. I don't want it to be a program. I don't want it to go on for months and months. I don't want it to exchange wins and have some 30-minute gimmick match. Just get on with it. Have have Rick Steiner win. Have Scott Steiner goes our way. I don't think Scott Steiner's a particularly good fit in the NWO. I don't think Rick Steiner is a particularly good babyface when he's not talking to Alex on his hand. And But... This is where the booking went at Super Brawl, so they just need to go ahead and do it. People are not clamouring to see Scott versus Rick Steiner, but that will be the final endgame of this feud, so let's get there quickly. Please give Luger something to do, and again, as we said earlier, get well soon, Buff Bagwell. Gene is on shield duty. A former member of the NWO could be returning, but you have to pick up the phone to find out who. Just one sixty-nine a minute, folks. Here's our special bonus match of Psychosis versus La Parker. Big slaps by both guys to get things going. La Parker's bones are yellow today, by the way. Flying heads is off the top rope by Psychosis, and he follows that up with a big suicide dive. Parker recovers with a big kick to the leg, and the crowd are dead as Parker hits a clothesline for a two count. Body scissors to the outside, and then a split leg moonsault from the top rope by Parker. The only person in the arena who cares about this is Mike Tenet. Vertical suplex gets two. Stun, by, stun gun by Psychosis while Tony is rattling on about the NWO. Parker goes up, but Psychosis crotches him down. He balances on the top rope for a Rana for another two count. We end up outside, and P hits a very nice twisting corkscrew moonsault onto the floor. He tries a splash, but Parker gets two, and then pulls him up. This is not the match for that sort of spot. Alabama slam, and then he pulls him up again. Powerbomb into a Rana gets two for Psychosis, and then a guillotine leg drop gets the three count for Psychosis against the John Entwistle lookalike. Eric, wrong, oh, gorgeous. wrong time, wrong everything. Boris the Spider could have done a better job. Live at Lee, or uh, live at... Uh, live at Leeds, absolutely. No, live at the, a couple of the uh, Isle of Wright Festival recordings are even better than that, too. Check those out. The Ox was really feeling it those days. Uh, shout out to... Chris Lacey, show and tell with tunes. Um, so um, this, okay, so I think I realized why they put this match in there. It's because if you look at the card truly as it's written on paper, they kind of had like story match or kind of like 
bad worker match interspersed with good wrestler matches. You can kind of see it with Goldberg and then the Ultimo Dragon and then Booker Benoit and then and is he there's kind of a try to balance this card out as best you can with some with some working uh to try to give fans like us something to get our teeth into. Um but um this match wasn't very long and it didn't really ever get going, kind of echoing the rest of the things on the card. And another match where the announcers, if you're going to have an unannounced match, you need to find something to really sink your teeth into. And they just didn't. And the only thing you need to know about this match from how much it actually ended up mattering was Bobby Heenan called the replay and he called no moves on the entire 30-second recap of the match. Um, like Vince McMahon, 1995 levels of no move calling. Um, it was pretty pathetic. Again, like... It's cool to have a match where you throw out two guys who could probably put a good match on. And I think Tanae said that they've worked uh, together a lot. Uh, but they weren't given enough time to really build to a match with consequences. Uh, and they weren't given anything to work with in terms of storyline or reason other than, oh, they used to be a tag team in Mexico. Um, so kind of a, a throw-in with not enough thought put into it. I know that's not necessarily the point of a throw-in match. It's probably to fill time and to get some extra workers on the card, but um, for a for a card that really needed something to kind of get out there and steal the show, this and the Ultimo Dragon Chava match, both could have been those matches, and neither were, neither one of them came close to doing that. Also try and get your hands on me live at the Fillmore East 1968, 1968 bootleg, if you can. That one is long overdue in official release, but uh, it is out there. Yeah, I see what they were going for by putting this match on. Give the crowd one last big opportunity for mindless pops before the big fellas come in. Yet the crowd were not playing ball this time. They did not care at all. Now, when you have Parker hitting a perfect twisting corkscrew moonsault, great move, got it absolutely bang on. And his response is just soul crickets. Then something isn't right. And I do wonder if they think just... Or now the crowd think that just throwing these guys out for 10 minutes, you probably could have done that a year ago and you would have got some pretty big reactions. Now we know what we're going to get here. And are the crowds finally starting to tune out of this sort of thing? So I was left behind on this about six or nine months ago. Not to say I can't appreciate the work of the best proponents of this particular style. And Psychosis and La Parker are definitely among that number. But yes, I'm long since fed up with this. But I think even the crowds who just want to cheer them for 10 minutes or should just want to cheer them for 10 minutes aren't doing so. It's a bad sign. I think they are now just being treated as a sole side attraction. And in fact, this match wasn't even announced beforehand. Just adds further grist to that mill. It's a shame. Both these guys are really good at what they do. I'll always have the utmost respect for them. But this goes back to what we said earlier about WCW. People are here to see the big names. And guys like this... They're starting to fall by the wayside. I don't see themselves getting a chance to really change up their style. They're there for high spots and that's it. But if those high spots aren't getting the reactions, it's time for yet another rethink in a whole bookload of rethinks that WCW might need to start looking at after the events of this month. And here come the big names with the <laughs> the pronunciation match, the bat match, the bad match between Hogan and Nash <laughs> and Piper and the Giants. The bat is suspended above the turnbuckle, and it must be said it looks quite high up. Piper goes for it straight away, but Hogan stops him and rams Roddy's head into the pole. Piper gingerly gets into position for the tree of woe, and Hogan gets the stomping. Tag to Nash. He waistlocks Piper into his team's corner and then tags out. Hey, you take it easy there, Kev. Piper goes into comical no-sell mode, but it must be said the crowd do go there with him. 
He pulls out Hogan's hair. This is more like it from Heenan. That won't take long. And both, <laughs> and both guys crawl around like it's the 59th minute of a Broadway. Hogan grabs his belt and chokes Piper with it. He goes for the bat that Giant has tagged him. He gets with his own belt and uh, smacks him on the ass. Nash breaks that up. Piper then attacks Nash with the belt as he and Hogan bail. Back in with a low blow by Hogan. Nash tells Piper to go and tag Giant back in and he obliges. Giant gets the better of those exchanges until he meets a big boot. Clothesline sends Giant down and a double big boot spot sends both guys down to the mat. I really hate that spot. Looks so phony. They both tag out and Piper sends Hogan down but a big Hogan sucks jump goes up. Piper said poked to the ice as Nash come in but Piper meets him with a good old shot to the balls. The Giant breaks out his drop kick to send Nash over the top rope and it's sleeper time for Hogan. The faces go for the bat and Giant gives Piper the bunk up to help him get it. And that ends the match. Or rather, no it doesn't, because now we are told it's pinfall or submission rules. Oh. Hogan recovers and grabs the belt. Grabs the bat. <laughs> I was about to say bad. Funnily enough, the next sentence talks about the disciple coming out. <laughs> what a mistake to make. He brings out his own bat. Giant gets slugged in the back by it, but when the heels queue up the shot to Piper's hip, they screw it up and Nash gets struck instead. Okay, I think I've got this right now. Piper then steals that bat, but Ed Leslie grabs the first one, I think, and Hogan slugs Piper with that for the three count. That's right. After, uh, yes, that only took me three watches. Nash doesn't want to celebrate, and I can't blame him, but Hogan demands he powerbombs Giants. As he goes to do so, Hogan nails Kev with the bat. He scarpers as Giants shouts, you're going to pay as only he can. I got some flashbacks to In Your House 4 early on, Eric. And now I went all the way back to Halloween Havoc 92 and the halcyon days of the coal miners glove match between Sting and Jake Roberts. And once again, that's not really the sort of thing you want to be revisiting. Uh, There's so much going on in this match. Uh, how, How do you review, like, how do you objectively rate something like this? I mean, a match that's... uh. Three guy, three out of the four guys who have main evented WrestleMania one point or multiple points. The giant, a guy who's got you know superstar dripping from him, and have a match like this that involves a spanking spot, multiple like taunts, and multiple guys hulking up in 1998, and beautiful Roddy Piper forgetting to or refusing to sell for Hogan like it's 1986 all over again. Oh, this is just an example of WCW giveth and WCW taketh away. <laughs> and I we had the, so much going on in this match. And there were some fun spots. And, you know, Hogan and Piper, there's maybe along with Flair, there's no better like heat guys in the whole business. Nash is pretty good at drawing heat for as bad as he is in the ring. And Giants just always that spectacle wild card. So I guess this match was fun from exactly a spectacle standpoint, but if you're looking for anything uh, close to a 1998 work rate level match between average uh, wrestlers, this isn't going to come anywhere near your, your lowest expectations. And then Hulk Hogan's fucking buddy, Beefer, Brutus, Butcher, Zodiac, Leslie, Izzy Hogan is back again with no beard and black hair, um, or with some beard and black hair, 
uh, and he's got a prominent role in this too. And so now we have Virgil and we have Beefer and we have Perfect and Neidhart and it's just SummerSlam 91 everywhere you look on this card. I don't know what to say about this match. If you like clusterfuck matches, kind of like Piper and Hogan's cage match at Havoc last year, you probably really like this. If you want something that's going to follow any type of cohesive storyline whatsoever, stay as far away from this match as you can. So, And it's setting up a Hogan versus Nash program, which is just going to be something to see. Yeah, yeah so some, something to see if you're that way inclined. I think you mentioned every uh, Ed Leslie gimmick there. I think you might have missed out the man with no name. Did you mention the booty man as well? No, I I didn't. You brought up Dizzy Hogan taking us back to oh, the, the early 80s there. That's how long this has gone on for. Ever the bag carrier for 23 <laughs> years. Yes, okay. Just how, just how does he get work? In fact, yeah, it's probably best not to speculate about that. Yeah, this match... Oh, God, this match. Is, could I even really call it a match? It was, It was a spectacle. It was something to behold. Unlike Hogan Piper at Halloween Havoc, which was a complete disaster in an entertaining way, this was a near disaster in a not entertaining way. It was That's the perfect a, way to put it. it yes. Was, it was just it was just a mess. In Halloween Havoc, you can sit back and think, what the bloody hell's going on here? It was here it was like, I don't know what's going on here. It was just so difficult to follow. You've got them crawling around like I said the fifty ninth minute of a Broadway. You've got Pipe and No selling after two minutes. You've got a big boot spot, which they sell for another two minutes. It was just a horrible mess. It wasn't entertaining in any real way. But even with the heels going over, there was nothing to really sink your teeth into. You couldn't even say this was bad fun. It was just a bad wrestling match that was never going to be a wrestling match. It was a house show main event. It's kind of the best way that I was trying to give this match some credit. Yeah. I think that's really well put. The crowd were with them, as they're always going to be with these names, and they got by on that alone. And just building this for weeks, going back into the last month, building it as a bat match, and yet grabbing it doesn't actually do anything. And if you can just bring another bat into the ring anyway, then what's the point? And again, you can say that trying to apportion logic in almost any WCW match is a fool's errand, but I've got to try to... I've got... I've got, I've got yeah, a man's got to try, right, in this situation. But yes, a total mess that wasn't entertaining in any way. Hogan's team won because, of course, they did. This is all about the Hogan-Nash food, which I'm not looking forward to. But at least it wasn't the main event. And at least we don't see Hogan again for the rest of the day. <laughs> anyway, let's go on. Certainly not. <laughs> Our semi-main events, DDP defending the US title against Raven. Before the bell rings, Sick Boy grabs DDP, but he does the old duckaroo, so Raven hits him instead. Page starts out quickly and forearms Raven to the outside. A slingshot crossbody takes out Sick Boy again. Raven hits a knee and Page catches his arm on the apron, or by a short-arm clothesline. He goes for the even-flow DDT, but DDP drives into the corner. He tries the cutter, but Raven now escapes. Then, God, just laughing at my notes here. They end up by the entranceway, and Raven tries to climb onto the stagecoats. He gets shoved off into a hay bale, and then DDP body presses him from off the stagecoach. Professional wrestling, everybody. An Irish whip into the fencing, and then, to quote Tony, his fifth profile of the night, he suplexes him onto the website. It was actually the table, but all right, Dad. Raven comes to, and he waffles Paige with a cake pan. He places Paige on... (laughs) 
fucking hell. He places Paige on a VIP table and splashes him down. He then grabs a ball rope which has a cowbell attached to it and smashes it over Paige's back. Then he chokes him with it. They they stagger back to the ring and then a kitchen sink finds its way in. Yeah, okay, guys. That joke was funny last year. And that gets a two count. He gets dropped to hold into it for another two. Kidman comes in with a splash, but Paige moves and he nails Raven. Again, only a two count. Sick Boy with a crotch shot. That can't keep Paige down. Inside Cradle for two. And now it's Hammer's turn to screw up. Shock as he nails Raven. DDP sees him off with a sink, but once more it's a kick out at two. Lots of unrealistic kick outs here so far. A low blow as Raven calls the flock in. Reese hits a choke bomb and Paige is out once again at 2.9. Lodi throws in a stop sign, but Paige blocks it. He hits all the flock bar Kidman with it, but he gets the cutter anyway. Some unidentified man in a baseball cap and a spring stampede crew t-shirt then attacks Paige, allowing Raven to hit the even flow onto the sink, in theory, to get the victory and the US title. Tony says he saw that man earlier pulling camera cables. Might well have been pulling something, because his name is Horace Balder. Yes, yes, the, the, Hogan, the Hogan family just keeps on going. Uh, he is actually Hogan's nephew, so I'm sure expecting to be wrestling for the world title on Starcade. Um, Eric, the idea of this match was very good. It was clearly meticulously planned. It, it was certainly entertaining in a way that the previous match wasn't, but it didn't really click for me. What do you think? Uh, I disagree. Maybe just because of the old adage, you know, any port in a storm. But <laughs> That's well put. This match, it was exactly what this card needed to drag it up, uh, you know, from, you know, into the, the warm hands of mediocrity. Um, and I thought this was a pretty fun match. I, I would like to start a petition that anytime there's going to be kind of a nasty boys style match, Cactus Jack style match as this was, that we can have Dusty Rhodes on the call. Um, that, that would have just made this match all the better. Uh, Tony Schiavone trying to, Harness his inner Dusty Rhodes by saying he wagon wheeled him when he did in fact, uh, I think Paige nailed Raven with a wagon wheel. Shout out to the Oregon Trail. Um, so, well, I wouldn't be here. So, um, but anyway, uh, really though, like these guys kind of, even if they plan this match out ahead of time or not, they really found an opening on this card to grab that performance that was needed. And it was a fun match. And we've seen, you know, Raven try to do some in-ring stuff in ECW and he's fine. And Paige is fine, although he's, you know, still pretty, his wrestling style, I would say, is basic uh, with a couple cool moves and one super over move. Um, and so in order to get a, a match that goes beyond something you put on Nitro with these guys, you really have to use the the scenery. And they did a really good job of that here too. And Raven's one of the best in the business at doing it. And they had a set that was just begging to be destroyed with all that plywood and, and cheap nails and plastic. And they took advantage of that. And this is the only really fun match of the night. And, uh, you know, a couple quabbles about DDP losing this match. I can kind of see that, but when you look at the fact that this was a setup for somebody to basically drop the belt to Goldberg the next night on Nitro, I think Paige losing a competitive match with lots of interference from the flock uh, serves Paige a lot better than winning this match and then going, you know, and getting jobbed out by Goldberg the following night. So, you know, Paige losing here was the ultimate way to protect him, I think, and it made Raven look good, and Raven looked even better the next night. So, the only match on this card where I say it worked out to everybody's strengths and it came together into something beyond passable. 
and both guys were all the better short and long term because of it. So, yeah, you know, even if you put this match on the middle of a better card, it may not stand out. That's not what happened here. So as far as what this card had available, I think this was clear in a way the best match of the night. Uh, yes, it probably was. And it was a ton of fun. Make no mistake. I was taken out of it by the end, though, by the relentless, endless two counts towards the end. You're hitting oh, yeah. With what are perceived as dangerous weapons and you're managing to brush them off at 2.1. These things have really got to mean something. I think the Observer called him like Diamond Dallas Hogan or something at some point, talking about You can tell that Paige planned this, making himself look like a bit of a superstar. And I'm a huge Diamond Dallas Page fan, and I always will be, I think. Yeah, here it did stretch the boundaries of believability a bit. Yes, it was good fun. Again, this sort of match may be perhaps a little too late in the card. It's, it actually reminded me a lot of the of the Chicago Street Fight at WrestleMania 13 last year. And before the main event, you've just got a wild brawl where you just say, just turn your brain off and try to enjoy. And I did enjoy it. You could tell that they were really, <laughs> and I get this concept, following a script for this particular match. It didn't really feel totally natural, which is a surprise because this is Raven's element. So whether the match is carefully planned down to the very last pixel or not, he strikes him as the sort of guy who can bring in improvisational riffing to this sort of match, and he didn't really do it. But it was fine. He got a one-day US title reign out of it. I hope they have got plans for Raven. We'll see going forward now he's dropped the belt. But just quickly on DDP, Eric, now that he has moved on from the US title picture, one year after his real coming of age when he beat Savage at this event 12 months ago, is this now DDP's time? I think if you look at his build and kind of his trajectory, even since not so much 94, 95, when he was just kind of swimming in the mid-low card as a, in that TV title role with Mark Merrow. Uh, but really 96 and then 97 when DDP really started to catch fire and kind of get it, uh, as a complete character. I think now is the point where you either, you know, say somebody is firmly planted in that mid card and they're not gonna really ascend out of that kind of like a, Razor Ramon uh, type role, which I think DDP would be fine uh, to play. Um, or it looks like what they're doing is say, okay, can you ascend up and uh, be one of these top echelon guys um, that could, one of these guys that we always say WCW has this group of 10 or 12 guys that any combination thereof could headline any single kind of B-show pay-per-view at any point in the year. And we've already seen Paige do that against Savage. Um uh, at least once before, I know they may have invented uh, one show. I'm not, I can't remember if they may have invented another one, but point is, Paige has already kind of flirted with that spot. Um, and maybe this is their way of saying, okay, can, can we rely on you to, um, hold down a spot up there permanently? And we'll know when six months, if he's back, you know, competing for the U.S. title, whether or not, uh, Paige is going to be somebody who's going to be a real player as opposed to just kind of a reliable over mid-card act. He's almost there. At the moment, I would say the level he has ascended to is world title main event on pay-per-view in a losing effort. He's almost, almost world title holding level. Just not quite there yet. If anything, his rise has happened almost too quickly to get there. I mean, it was only the beginning of last year he was having his battles with the NWO where they wanted to join him as number eight, if you remember. And now here he yeah. is, so close to the top of the card. Man, we said, I will never get tired of saying it. 
here's, here's an example for you. Six years ago this very month, I mean, God knows why I know this particular quote-unquote gem, which I was watching about a week ago, uh, a tag team match on Saturday night where he teamed up with Cactus Jack against the, the, well, the non-freebirds of Michael Hayes and Jimmy Garvin. And Page there looked atrocious. He just, no look whatsoever, clearly wasn't bothered. He couldn't even back bump properly. You, you know, if ever there was a situation where he was getting a job because he was a friend of a C-grade, a C-grade level announcer, as Bischoff was then, then that was it. And I just look at him now. I hope we're sat here in maximum of a year's time saying that Diamond Dallas Page has at least been the world champion. I think the crowds are ready for it now. Just one more push, give him one more big feud. Maybe he loses before he wins the big one and then he gets it. But I think the man is ready in every single way. He's a great character. He always gives his absolute best in the ring. Technically, he will never be a Marvel yet. There are a lot of people out and outright better than him who I would much, much less rather see in any any gamut of professional wrestling than this guy. So I think if the time isn't now, it's very, very close. However, our world title match today pits Sting, if you can remember that guy, defending against the aforementioned Macho Man Randy Savage in a no-DQ match. Remember that. Buffer brings the cheap pot by calling this the home of the Broncos. We waste no time here. Savage goes for Sting right from the bell. Chokes in a corner and then some stomps. Sting blocks a shot and then goes to town. He dumps Savage over the top and then they brawl outside. Savage sells the arm injury and then walks the aisle. Sting isn't having that and he sends him into the fencing. Sting throws him onto another of the wagon wheels and then a whip back through another fencing part and Savage lands on the pyro equipment. He hits Macho with an abrasive hay bale. Yeah, all right, Tony, all right. <laughs> yeah, you, re- you really had me there for a second. Back near the ring, a stinger splash gets guardrail, like it always does. The crowd are getting a little restless now, really, as Savage goes for a series of pinfalls for two counts. A back body drop by Sting gets nothing. Sting with another dump over the top rope. And now a suplex on the floor. Not much is happening until Savage hits a low blow. Sting gets dropped on the top rope, but he kicks out at two. Savage goes for the hammer, but Sting slugs in in the stomach. Sting almost splashes the ref, Charles Robinson, but then Savage knocks them both down. Yes, a ref bump in a no-DQ match. Liz is then in with a chair shot to Sting, but that does nothing also. He goes for another splash, but Liz gets the brunt of it. Savage with his own chair shot and Sting, and he's about to elbow him, but Hogan sidles out. That shocks you, and pushes him off the top rope. Sting is back and hits the death drop on Savage, but no ref. Nash is in, and he powerbombs Sting. He drags Savage on top, revives the official, and it's three count time. Randy Savage is the WCW heavyweight champion. This is going to tear the NWO apart, say our commentary team. Hogan and the disciple appear by the entranceway to say that Nash can't do that. That's my belt. A world title match, which doesn't feature Hulk Hogan, in which the feature is Hulk Hogan. I think we've been here with Savage before, haven't we? Oh, I don't know. WrestleMania 4, at least. Um, and then... Four, World War II. Right. Oh, yeah. January last year. There, there are examples if you know where to look for. And, and even the more passive-aggressive example of uh, Hogan Sid going on last at WrestleMania 8, uh, too, if you want to really extend this universe. But anyway... There will now be two main events, said Gene. <laughs> Yeah, okay. <laughs> so, okay. 
I, in kayfabe, I'm kind of starting to wonder if Sting kind of regrets being a dick to everybody for like a year and a half because now he doesn't have any friends and he's constantly getting his ass kicked and he looks like a chump every time he's in the ring. Sting has this, it was so clear like five minutes into the match at Starcade, even before the botch ending that Sting was all sizzle and, he, and he's just so, he doesn't have a great character. He's not very good in the ring. He doesn't really embrace this this mysterious character. He looked like an absolute asshole when he was crotch chopping Nash on Nitro, completely out of character. It's no wonder why the Sting build basically died the minute that they actual actually got to the match with Hogan. And he's just looked like an absolute dweeb. He essentially jobbed for Nash twice on Nitro and was saved with interference. And here he jobs to Macho Man and you know, I know there's outside interference, but you basically spend a year building up this guy who's supposed to be your next big star, and then it doesn't work, and then you just cost yourself a year of build because now he's just another one of these top guys that can be shuffled in and out of the main event, except he's not a very good worker, and his character work has been really bad since Starcade, and so I wonder if we'll just see Sting back down, you know, in the mid-card Again, especially North Goldberg on the upswing, he's he seems like he's going to be the next guy they position um, in that sting spot. So I guess I'm not really surprised that Savage won here, and I guess I'm not really surprised that the focus of Sting's character continues to be to further the NWO storyline uh, because Sting himself doesn't appear to have any direction right now. He's just another cog in the NWO wheel. Um, so uh, this match was fine. It was too much like the Page Raven match at times. There should have been something in between. If they were going to put these two matches on the same card, they shouldn't have put them right next to each other. Um, and but positives too. Savage was bumping like a boss. Liz took a huge bump, uh, probably for the first time that I can remember. And you know, Sting probably had his best match that he's had since he came back to active wrestling against uh, in December. But this was just not a main event caliber match and Savage was working with the torn ACL too. So they were limited by that. I can keep going. Um, but this match was just kind of indicative of the whole show. Like a lot of them have been, uh, and, and by that, I mean, just kind of never really got going and it ends and you're kind of like, well, that, that was it. It was indeed. You say this match wasn't main event caliber under the normal circumstances. I would agree with you, but nowadays we're up to April 1998 WCW. This is the main event caliber match. It's eight to ten minutes of fractionally above average, if you're being kind, action until ten million people run in and somebody gets put on top for the victory. I was expecting that right from the start, and I think the crowd were after their initial enthusiasm died away after two or three minutes. So they were restless, and I think I was being a bit kind there. They were I could sense some real tension that hang on, we're not gonna be getting this again, are we? Please prove us wrong. And it's exactly what happened. Not that they particularly wanted to see Sting win. But they knew what was coming, and yes, they got it. Match, which again has got some bizarrely fairly decent reviews. Everyone's saying this was better than it had any right to be. And yes, I know Savage hadn't, you know, torn ACL, but for me, this was bumped along the average, if you're being kind. I think both guys did try in there again. I've got to give them that. This probably was Sting's best in ring effort since he's come back, and I've got to give him a bit of grudging credit. This is probably the first time he didn't just look like the pizza delivery guy you don't want to open the door to for a change. But, um, where does he go after this? 
I mean, on the Nitro a couple of weeks after, he's in a meaningless six-man tag, which is laughably called the Nitro main event. And let's have a look at Sting losing the belt here. Nobody mentioned that. This was all about, this is going to tear the NWO apart. What's going to happen to the NWO? Hogan saying, Nash can't do that. That's my belt. And this is just par for the course with Sting. First time, he was due to win the belt at Wrestle War in 1990, but he went down with an injury at the previous clash. He eventually takes it from Flair in a, a decent match at Great American Bash 90. He then spends the next five months feuding with a magician, and he then drops the belt back to Flair at a house show in January in New York in the middle of a blizzard. That's number one. Number two, he wins the belt from Luger, who was clearly completely checked out with two feet out the door at Super Brawl 2. Doesn't even defend the title on pay-per-view, although he did have that great WrestleWar 92 uh, War Games match. And eventually gets killed by Vader at Bash 92. We have all the international world universe solar system nonsense, 93-94. He eventually holds one of those belts and he jobs it back to Flair yet again in a blah match. So Flair could be the unified champion, allowing Hogan to take it in his first match back, while Sting gets dumped back down to number two, number three, babyface. Twas ever thus. Sting is the ultimate guy people want to see chase the belt. When he's got it, nobody is really bothered. I say this has been going on for eight years now. It's, it's almost become the, the maximum of the 90s. Sting doesn't draw as champion. He just doesn't. People want to see him win it, but that's all well that any other babyface in any promotion People don't want to see him carry it. And he's lost about now and nobody's bothered. There's no groundswell of fan uproar saying that Sting is no longer world champion. People have now just accepted him teaming up with Luger and the Giant in non-entity matches against Norton and Conan and all the rest of the scrubs. So yes, Sting is now stung completely. You can't reinvent his character again. He can't go back to being Surfer Sting now. So what's it going to be just now? Upper mid-card, easy pop? They didn't. Maybe they didn't learn their lesson early enough. But whatever, Sting. It's a shame because even though he's not great on, the, he's not great on the mic. He's never been great in the ring. His Smash Mouth style is watchable, but no more. Yet I've always had a, an admiration for him. I think now it might be time to finally close the book. Yet this match was all about advancing the NWO storyline, and we'll get further onto that a bit later on. And it was our close to Spring Stampede 1998. Eric, your final thoughts and, as is customary, a score rating out of 10. Yeah, I'm, I won't go long here. This show, uh, just kind of indicative of where WCW is right now, just kind of aimless, a lot of aimless matches, a lot of weird finishes, convoluted stuff, stuff not living up to the hype. Um, and then the the main event scene is just a disaster. Um I think this is a perfectly skippable show, especially because the two relevant title changes that happen are undone again the next night on Nitro. So just skip to Nitro and you'll be all caught up on everything you need to know. Uh, just alone on the Page Raven match and the attempt that Ultimo Dragon and Chavo uh, gave, I'll give this show a three out of 10. I'll go ever so slightly higher at a three and a half. You, you stole my line there about the two big titles changing hands and then 24 hours later, they were completely meaningless as we will get to very shortly. This was an event which never really got going. I think it could have been paced better. I think the match order was all over the place. Again, it was a WCW pay-per-view where 
everybody, even the main eventers, with one or two notable exceptions, seemed to be trying hard, but they were just banging their heads against the wall for some reason. They just couldn't quite crack through to the other side. And despite all their efforts, it became a bit of a morass. And I say, WCW on pay-per-view, on television, everywhere. I just wonder if now they've, they've hit the ceiling and there's no really much higher they can go. Can't keep doing this in main events. You can't keep relying on your undercard because as we say, they didn't really get a chance to shine even there, even their top echelon workers. You know, the matches were cut short. A lot of them were story-led. A lot of them didn't really play to their strengths. So yes, a perfectly skippable show, which meant little at the time, means even less now. The Spring Stampede 1998 is most definitely not Spring Stampede 1994. Three and a half out of ten. We open proceedings from Colorado Springs on the 20th with exclusive footage of both Hogan and the Disciple attacking Savage and Nash via baseball bat at Spring Stampede. Of all people, Scott Norton is seen telling them the belt is back in the NWO, and that is what matters. Hogan and Bischoff are starting us off, of course. Hogan admits that there is a split in the NWO, but he knows he is still the true leader of the group and the world champion. Savage only has the belt because of his big sexy girlfriend, and he issues a challenge to Macho for tonight. After a break, Savage is out to respond. He hates Hogan in life and death and agrees to put the belt on the line. He also takes the opportunity on live television to introduce the new leader of the NWO, one Kevin Nash. Kev and his Reebok shell suit say that last night was step one, the end of Hogan's career. Savage will make it official tonight. And as for Bischoff, he had better not get involved. Remember Baltimore, weatherman. Hogan, book closed. It's over. Our wait for the first match comes to an end thanks to uh, Conan, who beats Chris Adams with the Tequila Sunrise. Barbarian versus Wayne Bloom follows. Oh, we're bringing out the big guns today. Barbarian gets an easy victory. Jericho is still wearing Ikea's ceremonial dress from yesterday. He also has with him a framed picture of Dean Malenko. It is a shrine which represents his respect for Dean. The bad news is Malenko has retired. The good news is he has a job interview at Harry's Burgers tomorrow. And Jericho is now in action against Hoovy once more. The crowd are hugely into Guerra and they rally him when he is locked in the Lion Tamer. He doesn't submit but Charles Robinson stops the match. Big start to the second hour with Buffer doing the intros for the US title match which has already been heavily pushed all show. Raven defends against Goldberg and it feels like a big deal. So much so that Raven breaks out a dropkick. A spear wipes him out but here come the flock. No matter what they throw at him, he sees it off, including a jackhammer for Reese. Raven tries to leave, but fans chuck him back over the guardrail. Another massive spear and a jackhammer, and there is Goldberg's first title. La Parker and Dragon follows that, and they do a pretty good job of it. Eddie drags Charbo out by his hair and demands his nephew interferes in the match, which he reluctantly does. La Parker then takes it with a rolling body attack. Benoit against Hennig doesn't get much time before Rude dies in for the DQ. Booker comes down for the save, but the Crippler isn't happy with that, and the two brawl to the back. Gene is here with Piper. Last night we had a ball, but unfortunately Hogan had a bat. Eh, good line. After his night of misery last night, he's going to return the favour. Tonight's title matches no DQ, no run-ins, and no chance for Hogan to escape. 
We are going to fight until we have a winner. That sounds familiar. Hammer and Saturn face each other because that's what the flock do. Just a pure street fight here for the double count out. Public Enemy open the final hour against Bagwell and Big Popper Pump. This one is given what seems like ages. Both of PE fall through the table and then the recliner and the blockbuster polish off Rocco. Psychosis versus Booker T is surely picked out of a hat. Booker's big moves are really gaining in popularity. Once more it's the missile dropkick that keeps the title in his grasp. In a match which exists but no more, Lex Luger pins the former crush Brian Adams after heel miscommunication. And with that nonsense out of the way, it's main event time. And we come back from our TV review of the 20th of April night show, which did secure them another ratings victory. It must be said, a very handsome one. Predominantly for what I'm now going to talk to you about, which was yet another world title match. Randy Savage defending against Hulk Hogan. Oh, I've been looking forward to this one. Here we go then. So the play-by-play, such that it is. The heavyweight world title belt, as Michael Buffer calls it, is on the line. The action between Savage and Hogan meets with little enthusiasm early as the crowd know the match will not end without a run-in, just like at the pay-per-view yesterday. Hogan brings chair shots and his belt into play, but Savage battles back. He goes to the top and hits the elbow, but he lands on his gammy knee. Hogan puts on a figure four, but the fans are just looking at the entranceway. The hold gets broken, and then Disciple gives Patrick a neckbreaker. Yes, you heard me right. The Apocalypse, a really rubbishy-looking stunner, in other words, onto the belt for Savage, brings out Nash. Bischoff, <laughs> Bischoff tries to stop them, and then Hogan accidentally nails the Disciple. Bischoff gives Nash some kicks, but you can guess how that turns out. He hits the jackknife on Hogan, that's Nash, not Bischoff, and he pulls Savage on top. But now Brett is on his way. He picks up the world title belt, and he hits Kevin Nash with it. No. No, 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 no. No, Brett, don't reverse the cover. Don't put Hogan on top. Don't revive the... Oh, you've done it. The three counters administered, and Hogan is world champion once again. A perplexed Piper emerges and asks Brett what is going on. But the hitman only answers in the form of a punch and that heel smirk of his. Yes, everybody, they've only gone and bloody turned Brett Hart. And if you don't believe me, here it is happening. Big sexy and seen enough. Nash! Kevin Nash comes out. Kevin Nash standing over Savage. Who is this behind him? Uh oh. That's he just said no running. Remember, Piper said no running. That's run-in. Bishop. That's Bishop. Piper said no one can run in for this match. I think we're seeing the split right now. Oh! Down goes the Disciple! Powerbomb! Powerbomb on Trying to get the jackknife. Those kicks from Bischoff. Oh, Bischoff, get down! Nash is determined. He's going to powerbomb Hollywood. Here it comes! Oh, I wanted to see this on my Jackknife Hollywood! Savage is going to win it. He punched Savage on Hogan. Get Patrick up. Here comes Bret Hart. Bret Hart by the... Red Hart nails! Big Sexy! 
What's he doing? My God, what's... What is he doing? Bret Hart pulled Hogan on top of Savage. What's he doing? Bret Hart, one, two, or Hogan, Hogan wins the world title. You've got to be kidding. I'm going to throw up. I'm stunned. Look at Piper. He can't believe it either. How in God's name did this happen? What is Bret Hart doing here? What? And that's what Piper wants to know. Confronting the headman Bret Hart. This is this is the honest. Ladies and gentlemen, in the midst of all this, Hollywood Hogan is the heavyweight champion of the world. Piper says, talk to me, but Hart doesn't have any answers for him. What is happening, that man? Oh, oh, my God! Can you believe this? That spineless, back-turning, back-stabbing Bret Hart has come to the aid of Hollywood Hogan. So there you go. I didn't make it up. Eric, what are they playing at? Yeah, this isn't even, like, likable heel pro-Canada Bret Hart. This is just like fucking WCW Bret Hart, isn't it? Like he's got the terrible theme music and he just wears flannels and jeans and he looks like your dad out there taking you to sports practice. And he comes out and he still complains about not being respected and he hasn't had a storyline since he got here. And now he comes out and he aligns himself with Hogan. It's like, okay, uh job with that WCW like now you've totally ruined any chance you had to make Bret Hart relevant there's some distant distant talk about this being a long term setup for Hogan versus Hart to main event Starcade. I really don't think so and like okay sure even if it does happen I don't want the build to be eight months long and two I would bet my hand that Hogan would not you know do anything but you know, want to take the leg drop one, two, three in the middle and, you know, beat Hart clean uh, based on his past history. So this is not going anywhere. I don't think, I don't think WCW knows what to do with Bret Hart. I don't think they know what to do with their main event. I don't think they know what to do since Sting clearly is just not worked out at all as somebody that that can represent the face side of the upper card. Um Maybe are they putting Nash in that scenario? And if they are, I don't want to watch it anymore. <laughs> um, yeah, this is my, and then Piper is involved too. And I'm just, the rambling that I'm doing about this is just kind of indicative of, I think, how they do the booking, which is how can we just put everybody's name in a hat and draw it out? And this is their affiliation now. And if they're setting up Brett versus Piper in 1998 and Nash versus Hogan and Savage is maybe going down with a knee injury, I do not look uh, forward to watching the upper card of WCW over the next couple of months. It's just, what are they doing with Bret Hart? Why aren't they just putting him in match after match that he can have with Benoit and Booker T and even Hennig and some of these guys um, that he could have good matches with? And instead, they're just aligning him with Hogan. He's just going to be one of another one of these annoying heel characters that WCW has. Like, oh boy. Um, you know, uh, this is going to be interesting. Oh, my word. Dear, oh, dear, oh, dear. How to unpack this one. Bret Hart joins World Championship Wrestling. 
with the biggest amount of goodwill anybody can join any promotion, almost any form of work anybody possibly can. It's unbelievable. Exactly, it is, isn't it? Nobody, nobody wanted to hate this guy. But no, how how could you? Even if you're the markiest mark in Markdom, you're going to support Bret Hart in this situation. You really, really are. And people were. Was he getting epic, world-changing reactions? No, but that doesn't matter. You're putting him in there with Ric Flair in his first pay-per-view match. Ric Flair. You're putting him in there with Kurt Hennig in March. Kurt Hennig, who's just not a WCW guy, and have them work at an old-style match, which Hennig, even now Hennig can't really do anymore. Have they just looked at those two? And have they panicked at those things? Oh, people don't want to get behind Brett? Because if, if that is the case, they are completely and utterly wrong. I guarantee you now, when people know that Bret Hart joined WCW, yes, he might say he joined at the wrong time because they needed to get the Hogan Sting stuff out of the way. Understood. Didn't like how they brought him in. Referee for Bischoff, he's a Bisco, for goodness sake. But, you know, that's gone now. Have Bret upper mid-card, cutting promos. He doesn't need to go to the world title picture straight away. But keep him there, as you say, having four-star-plus matches with guys on his level. And then when you get to round about the late summer... If Hogan is still the champion, then which he probably would be, then you start getting things uh, getting things really into gear for that match at Starcade. Okay, then as you absolutely say, would Hogan you know, lay down for the sharpshooter in the middle of the ring? Debatable at best, but I don't even think we're going to get that now. This just looks for all the world Hogan pulling a power play to make absolutely sure that that doesn't happen, and he keeps Brett on side as yet another smoke blowing disciple-esque lackey. Bret Hart is now just for slightly redeemable Ed Leslie. What a complete and utter total waste of Bret Hart that is. When Bret turned heel for the WWF this time last year, he had a legit, a legitimate grievance to do so. He thought that the American wrestling fans were changing and that he was being left behind. Bret Hart, the person, thought that. And he parlayed that into his character and gave us eight months of excellent heel work. Maybe not altogether completely successful, but by and large, very, very good. Here, we don't know why he's turned heel. He wouldn't tell us. He didn't tell us for Nitro after this. He didn't tell us for Nitro after that. The cynic in me might say that they haven't really got a storyline reason for this. Once again, just suggesting they've done it because they can, and it's somebody who will not be challenging the big fella at Starcade. It doesn't even really matter that the promo Brett cut the week after this, although it was generic heel stuff, was actually fairly decent. His delivery is much better now than it was a year ago. But here I'm just grabbing at straws. Once again, you've got, it goes back to what I said earlier. If you have the tools there, use them. Now, don't be like a child with a toy on Christmas. You know, when your parents say, oh, you learn to be happy with that when you've broken it. A toy works when it comes out of a box for a reason. That is what you do to play with it. If you get a toy robot, don't try and stick the batteries in its mouth. It's not going to work. They go into its back for a reason. And Bret Hart is Bret Hart the babyface for a reason. And once again, you wonder, are they doing this? Is this sabotage? Is, is, <laughs> do they have a person on the inside, some sort of a mole going on? It's just staggering incompetence on a monumental level. I mean, I'm no conspiracy theorist, but I almost think that's what's going on here. 
Now, Eric, any more? Just what are they doing to themselves? It, it doesn't. We talk about the depth in the WWF, and one thing that it doesn't get talking about enough is, or the lack of depth in the WWF. But one thing that doesn't get talked about enough is when you have only three, four, five, six maybe characters that you really need to put your focus on any particular month or any particular you know storyline, uh, like you have with Austin and Rock and the Outlaws and DX, and you have these the names that are really entrenched at the top over in the fed and then you look at wcw and they have such depth and they have such top line roster names nash hall brett hogan ddp even like a guy like uh, goldberg now looks like he's going to be up there and it just goes on and on and on rick flair um giant and luger sting i mean at a certain point i think it becomes it's impossible to have cohesive storytelling that makes sense for all these guys in the upper echelon of the card. And I think exactly what we talked about in the Montreal episode of this podcast has happened and that Bret Hart has gotten, or maybe it wasn't the Montreal one. Maybe it was way back in the summer when Bret first started negotiating. But at some point we talked about how Bret Hart going to WCW was almost assuredly to get lost in the fold because they wouldn't know what to do with him because Bret Hart's not exactly the out of the box star. Um, like a guy like Hogan, he's a guy you kind of have to mold and massage and train the fans that this is the top guy for these reasons that aren't typical to top guys. And WCW, as we predicted, doesn't know what to do with him, doesn't know how to market him, doesn't know how to utilize Brett's tools to his best ability. And now here he is, in fact, just lost in the fold uh, with no direction like everybody else on the top of the card. Uh, welcome to WCW, Brett. It's been a long five months, and I fear it's going to get a lot longer just to try to salvage some sort of entertainment from this absolute sham. Uh, when Brett slugged Piper with a punch, Piper was supposed to say to him, why, Brett, why? But he forgot his line. I really would have marked that if Brett had said to him, what do you say? Before, uh, before smacking <laughs> him in the face. <laughs> Giving us our second WrestleMania 11 reference of the evening. <laughs> if all else fails, turn back to WrestleMania 11. On the 29th, we get a quick-fire one-hour Nitro at the Scope. We start with Alex Wright boogieing with the Nitro girls. Well, dance with what brung you, I guess. Followed by the NWO music. And Savage and Nasha here. Scott Hall isn't, but Nasha assures us he's fine, as he saw him with two pina coladas in his hand two days ago. The Wolfpack is expanding, and Macho is the newest member. Savage then says Brett will never get out of trouble. And Hogan needs to face reality. Fewer people are now on his side. Conan is now in the Nash Savage coop. He cuts a horrid promo comparing Savage to Coca-Cola and Corvettes. I think that's meant to be a positive. Hoovy gets a very nice sit-down interview in where he calls himself the real Aztec warrior. It's two, Jeff. Jericho and his picture of Malenko are back. Once again, he interviews the number two wrestler in the world and says that Dean is more talkative than usual today. He then takes on Chavo and beats him with a tamer in two minutes. Both Eddie and Jericho berate Chavo once again. We then get footage from Thunder last week of the very real injury suffered by Buff Bagwell at the hands of Rick Steiner. He had surgery today in Atlanta and pleased to say he is getting some feeling back. Hogan and his suck-ups are here once more. He's done it all and for the rest of eternity he will be it all. <laughs> well, I don't know about you but I'm scared. Nash and Macho are total jokes and down and out. 
like Alexander the Great or maybe Eric Bristow, there is nothing left for Hogan to conquer. And why, Brett, why? Because he knows where the power lies. Scott Norton versus Goldberg. Bill kicks out of a devastating shoulder breaker, and before you can say 77 and 0, it's 77 and 0. Gene asks Brett why. It's nice to be here in the house that Hogan built, says Brett, to absolutely no reaction, it must be noted. There's no room for guilt in pro wrestling. It's a place where good men die like dogs. Jesus. Savage never had the guts to step into the ring with him, apart from the two times he did, before now. Macho is half troll and half lizard. Brett wants to look Hogan in the eye tomorrow, and then we will be told what happened. It's time for the hitman to arrive. And also in the scope, a two-hour show brings us home the next day. Disco vs. Benoit is the first match. To his credit, Inferno does all he can to hang with the Crippler in a match which ends by the crossface. Malenko's music strikes up, but of course it's Jericho doing a very accurate impression. He's even got the shoulder rolls down. He faces Psychosis in a really exciting match with some hot near falls until the lion table gives Jericho the W. Somebody walks among us who actually booked Rocco Rock versus the Barbarian, and I'd like a nice word with him. Hugh Morris attacks Rocco, but then he gets hit by a Johnny Trash can shot, which somehow turns this into a tag team match. Grunge gets pinned after a lame, lame, lame kick by the former Sioni. Kidman versus Hoovy follows. In losing his Muscawera seems to have actually gained in character, which is interesting. The 450 gets the Duke. The Flock then do Flock things, and it's Horace and Reese who do the damage. Alex Wright gets to Sprecken. He is personally offended that he is back here in this pigsty because nobody tells him what to do. He dances, because Alex Wright, until Dillinger and co. see him off. Eddie goes for Booker's TV title. The book wins clean as a sheet with the missile dropkick. Charbo still gets blamed and slapped. Second hour starts with Marty Jannetty coming out to the old Hollywood Blondes music versus Saturn. A Death Valley driver gets to win for good old Pezza. What feels like the 1,000th interview in Nitro history by Gene with DDP is next. He calls out Raven to feel the Big Bang Theory, but he gets Kidman and Sick Boy instead. They play video of Raven in a corridor. Paige's mother must have despised him for making him live with his father. Then he tells Paige it is over. We come back live and DDP takes his frustrations out on Sick Boy. A fan then attacks Kidman from behind before security come to the rescue. Jerry Flynn versus Goldberg now. Tanae tries to sell Jerry as having a chance, but really. 78 nil. We get an update on Bagwell. He had surgery yesterday and is currently convalescing, and the long-term prognosis is good. Our in-ring main event pits Conan, Scott Steiner and Brian Bleeding Adams versus Sting, Luger and the Giants. This seems to be the level for Sting now, which is a major worry. Fans are into the Lex Steiner exchanges, of all things. Adams walks out on his team, Scott and Conan then bail, so poor old Vincent takes the shots. The show ends with Brett and Hogan eye to eye. Hogan takes his time to emerge, but when he eventually gets there, Brett wants everyone to understand Hogan as somebody he has looked up to for a long time. He blows more and more smoke, and Hulk of course calls it the truth. Savage interjects and prevents Brett from telling us why. Uh-huh. He then gets beaten down by Brett and his new pals. The question why, Brett, why? remains unanswered uh, one more thing before we uh before we wrap up for the month and that is uh, some more good news bill goldberg is our u.s heavyweight champion he defeated raven in a really fun match at the top of the second hour as i said in the tv report you would have heard it was heavily trailed throughout the first hour we had two backstage interviews with raven 
We had two shots of Goldberg warming up. Commentators referenced it regularly. And what we got was a good seven or eight minutes of, of fun action with the right ending in which Raven, after only one day, it must be said, put Goldberg over like a total pro. And Eric, I'm actually going to link this in a way to our uh, DDP question. Now that DDP has dropped the US title, we could be headed to the main events, perhaps. And we talked about it during the pay-per-view. Uh, Bill Goldberg against Hulk Hogan at a pay-per-view, possibly. Do you think that's where this is going? Should Goldberg hold on to the US title for a while? Uh, what do you, and again, what do you think of the match as well? Just take any of that. So this was the best Goldberg match. I haven't seen all, I don't know how many there have been now. 75 is the storyline or something like that. I've already I, I think most people I, have, really. But you know. I've probably seen 10 of those or 12 of them or, or something like that overall that I can remember. I don't watch all the Nitros because Raw is just way better right now. Um, I and, watch all the Nitros, so you don't have to. Thank you. Um, and so, but, you know, the handful of Goldberg matches I've seen have kind of been Spear Jackhammer one, two, three, except for the match against Saturn. And I think he had a longer match against McMichael at one point too, right when he was getting started. And that match was obviously bad. Um, but this is by far Goldberg's best match that I've seen. And I think it really demonstrates that you have a guy like Raven who's really willing to just do whatever it takes to make his match good and to put somebody over. You can make somebody even as green as Goldberg look like a fucking monster. Um, and this match was booked a lot like the DDP Raven match the night before, except Goldberg was able to overcome the flock and so that kind of immediately separates him from a guy like DDP um, because DDP wasn't strong enough to overcome those odds um, we talked about the Ultimate Warrior build earlier and Goldberg's got the US title now and it's not inconceivable that if I'm booking Goldberg I just look at the lead up to Wrestlemania 6 between Hogan and Warrior and Warrior was IC champ going into that match. He wins. He unifies the, the title. That kind of elevates the IC title even further. And in this case, could elevate the U.S. title even further, even if Goldberg has to drop the belt because you can't hold both probably. Um, but yeah, I mean, if you want to keep Goldberg strong and have him kind of run through the upper mid card on his way to Hogan or whoever the champion is, whenever Goldberg gets around, it has to be Hogan, right? Okay. Um, but... Yeah, you could have him hold the U.S. title. You don't want him to lose before he gets to whoever his ultimate, you know, final boss is on this initial push. So I think now that you've put the strap on him, he kind of has to hold it. If he gets his world title shot in two weeks' time, if he gets his world title shot in two years' time, Bill Goldberg must not lose before that match takes place. And he sure as hell must not lose when that match takes place. Have the guy be U.S. champion, World champion, undefeated. Now that is what I call a draw. Back to the match. The match was a lot of fun. I really did enjoy it. It was like only about eight minutes. Wasn't a whole lot to it, but just Raven getting his ass kicked. But again, he takes an ass kicking so, so well. It's his modus operandi and has been for the last three years, but with good reason. And a rather technical point I just want to make. It's not often that I use the word technical in a Bill Goldberg match, but I will here nonetheless. The way that Raven took the two spears, now that sort of move, it's very easy as an opponent to just sort of flop down, in which the move just ends up looking like the running hog of doom. Here, Raven took off both times. He was in mid-air. Goldberg just smacked him down for about two feet, made it look evil, almost made the jackhammer itself look academic. Now, that is how you put the exclamation mark on somebody and make them look, yeah, this guy is going to destroy you. So yes, kudos to Raven for putting him over so strong there when he could easily have just you know, thrown a paddy after 
being asked to drop the title after one day. He didn't. He went out there like a total pro. So well done there, uh, Mr. Levy. And Goldberg just goes on and on. Just, just again, just roll with it. It's so simple. A guy with two moves who wins wrestling matches. Yeah, I'll, I'll watch your television program. I'll come to shows. And I'm sure there are millions of other people around the world who will do, do the same. But as always, this is WCW. If anybody, anybody can screw that up, then I'm sure that Messrs. Bischoff, Sullivan, and of course the Perma Presence, Mr. T. Belaya Esquire, will do their best to do so. Well, I just hope on this occasion, they just let Goldberg run with the title, the US title, beating everybody in his wake until he meets, as you say, Eric, his final boss. Could be next month, could be three months' time, could be six months' time, but I'll be there front row and centre for Bill Goldberg versus, I assume, Hulk Hogan. Now, we ain't going to be getting Brett these days, so it looks like Goldberg Hogan will be where we are at some point before the end of the year, I hope. And it will be the first Hogan match I've looked forward to since his match against Sting at Starcade 97. And what a precedent that is <laughs> to build on. And I think that, before I disappoint myself any further, is the perfect place to end our trip into the time machine. For April 1998, Mr. Eric Lansdom, thank you for joining me on the first pathway of our new journey, a journey that could well never end. May it may it exist in perpetuity under the leadership of yourself, Mrs. White and Mr. Uh, Lacey. As a certain other group had it a year or so ago in timeline, we're taking over. Now, I don't know which one of us would be Stevie Richards, which one would be Nova, which one would be... Uh, <laughs> oh, boy. Would be, would be Mr. Meany. I think that's something for the three of us to discuss uh, off mic, which we're going to do at some point in the future. But... Uh, Yes, I was just thinking, actually, um, if we do keep this going, I think we should already start now drawing straws for who's going to get the short one for the WWF show for April 2018. They will have a five-hour WrestleMania and a five-hour Greatest Royal Rumble to dissect. Eric, can I pencil you in for that one in 20 years' time? <laughs> we'll see. I probably need to watch it first. I actually watched the Greatest <laughs> Royal Rumble on uh, on Friday. I still haven't actually seen all of WrestleMania yet, would you believe? But I did watch all of Greatest Royal Rumble on Friday, which was two days ago as we record this. And, yeah. I'll probably uh, I'll probably put it on in the background as I cook dinner tonight or something. We'll it's, see. It's definitely a yeah, you, you, <laughs> Be careful not to burn dinner because your eyes will be so focused on it throughout the entire five hours. Oh, dear, oh, dear, oh, dear. But, yes, that, that, that's something for us to worry about in 20 years' time. As we say, we are the Wrestling 20 Years Ago podcast. We are still very much keep on going. You can find us on Twitter at Wrestling20YRS. We are also on the Facebooks at Wrestling20 Years, so you, which is mainly the domain of Mr. Chris White, but we all chip in on Twitter and Facebook whenever we can. Our website is still very much up and running. It's um, laying dormant at the moment, but if you want to check up there for all podcasts you might have missed, plus years and years and years of archived material going all the way back to the start of our timeline in August 1993. It's wrestling20yrs.com. Hey, find us on Patreon, patreon.com forward slash wrestling20yrs. If you could generate, if you could generate, <laughs> out of thin air, donate $5 per month to help keep this, keep this show on the road. Pays for the Observer subscription, pays for the Torch subscription, one or two other things as well. And you get early access to every podcast as soon as it's up and ready. You don't need to wait until the end of the month for the three to be there on your pod, uh, on your podcatcher app. They'll be there emailed to you directly so you can be ahead of the curve. So this was volume one. 
where we looked at Spring Stampede for WCW. Volume 2, WWF Unforgiven. Volume 3, ECW, lots of hardcore TV. So yes, thank you very much for sticking with us. I want to pay tribute once more to Mr. Bob Bamber for the nearly five years of service he gave us. Came up with this crazy, crazy idea of a wrestling podcast, which is actually played in the past. How many wrestling podcasts were there in August 1993? That's what I say to the naysayers about the way we particularly do things here. And they can't answer me. So if you're one of those who has stuck with us since the very beginning, or if you are a new fan, we are delighted to have you on board. And we hope you stay for a very, very long time, even up until beyond the Greatest Royal Rumble. So from myself and Mr. Eric Landstrom, round of time. We've got to go. We've got to go. We've got to go. We've got to go.